Thank you much, BK. What's up, Jeff? What's going on, Trey? How you doing? I'm good, man, and I'm excited to get to do this with you starting today and going forward through football season. You and I were talking prior to me jumping on with BK at noon, and I admitted something to you that there, for a long time now, I've wanted to figure out a way to get you regularly involved with whatever it was that I was doing in broadcasting, not only because you do a great work uh, along with Bob Ballou at KI, but Appreciate because that. I've had a, a lot of off-microphone conversations and I not only hear great sports knowledge and really good insight as somebody who is close to the situation, that situation right now being Longhorn football, of course, but uh, you've got a really fun personality too. So I was looking forward to uh, to people getting to see another side of you that isn't always evident on those sports reports on KI. Yeah, no, for sure. Like you said, we were talking earlier and excited to be part of what you guys are doing here. I mean, I think it's just an awesome idea to... I mean, the, the name says it all, Texas Sports Unfiltered. And, uh, you know, unfiltered, not exactly something that you can be when you're uh, representing a, a local station with a network like CBS behind it and love my gig there and, you know, all the opportunities and access that it affords me being at the UT games, getting to be on the field, do the post game, <clears throat> all that kind of stuff. So, um, but this is was an exciting opportunity when y'all reached out about it because, you know, can really dig deeper into some of the things that, you can't really showcase in a three-minute sports cast or, heck, even a 30-minute show. We do 30 minutes on Sunday nights of just purely sports, mainly UT stuff. But, yeah, super excited for this opportunity. Man, I know, like you said, we've we've had tons of conversations off camera. I always think of Big 12 Media Days and yeah. um, all the times that I get to bump into you guys. And I see you guys on Radio Row, and I'm like, man, I, mean, I love what I'm doing. But you guys are on, <clears throat> on Radio Row there with just – you know, your mark popping in, coaches, players popping in. I'm like, man, radio looks like a little bit of fun too. And I love the, I love the YouTube platform too. I think that's awesome. What yeah. y'all are doing here. Longer, longer form conversations are something to strive for. And that's not to say that, uh, like you said, you don't love your day job and you guys do such a, a great job at it there too. So let's talk a little bit about this Texas Longhorns game from Saturday night. It was a hard fought affair, a tie game going into the fourth quarter that, the Longhorns do ultimately come out victorious and uh, I guess going away too because Wyoming was just trying to kill out the rest of the clock in that final drive. A little bit strange that they weren't going through the air a little bit more, but I guess... I feel like they were just trying to kill the clock the entire game. Like, they didn't care what the score was. That was like their entire game plan was like, hey, we're having a little success running the ball on these guys. Let's just keep doing it and just get out of here. That yeah, kind of felt like what the game plan was but- at a certain point. Wasn't that a decent opportunity to work on that late game offense where you do need to try and push the ball up the field a little bit more? That might come in handy in the Mountain West. But ultimately, we were happy with that because it allowed the game to be done in a reasonable amount of time. So you were actually at the game uh, taking uh, taking shots with the uh, with the video camera on top of obviously talking to guys after the game as well. What were your impressions from being on the field watching that one play out? Well, I got to say, just from an atmosphere standpoint, it was it was pretty awesome coming out of that Alabama game. I mean, you knew that, I mean, six home games a year, like fans are going to show up. But I felt like they stayed, you know, I mean, there was probably some negativity in the stands that maybe I couldn't feel when I was down there on the sideline. But I felt like they stayed into it the entire time. There was a little bit of like 10-10 going into the fourth quarter. Everyone, there was a little bit of nervous energy that you could start to feel. But, you know, I think my impressions are, that's a way better than people probably realize Wyoming team. And I mean, we have a little bit of actual tangible evidence of that in week one when they beat tech at home, but not only is that a really good team overall, that's a really good defense. 
And I know people say, oh, they had the backup quarterback in there, backup running back. But, you know, it's, it's funny. they um, That running back, I don't even think he was on the two deep going into the game because we asked some of those guys afterwards. And you could tell they kind of didn't want to admit, like, no, we really didn't know much about him. But he kind of snuck up on him. And I think there's just no, I mean, you know, Trey, there's a little bit of human nature, I think. And, like, no matter how hard you try to be, like, this is a trap game. This is a sandwich game. I mean, you're coming off the biggest win at Tuscaloosa in years. And that Wyoming game is sandwiched in between that game and the Big 12 opener. You know, the embrace the hate tour, your final trek through the Big 12. Like, it was a little bit inevitable that there was going to be some sort of kind of hangover. I think people hoped after the first quarter, it was like, okay, you got that out of the way. Now let's do what we did, ended up doing in the fourth quarter to them in the second, third and fourth quarter. But for all the for all the crap that this team got last year, and a lot of it warranted for not closing out games and for starting hot and all oh, the opening script was awesome and we were great in the first half, had this big lead, and then they would blow it late. We've got to now give credit in turn for two weeks in a row, just absolutely throttling teams, whether it's Alabama or Wyoming, in the fourth quarter. So to me, that was kind of my big takeaway was, um, and I, I'm not always this way, like, you know, I'm not always the, oh, win's a win. But I think in this case, a win's a win, move on. And if some of these things seep into next week, then I think maybe that's the sign, uh, you know, of, of a larger issue. And I'm sure we'll talk more about specifics later in each side of the ball. But, you know, I think generally speaking, that was my takeaway. I tend to be pessimistic in moments like this, but I do see the silver lining in the performance from Saturday because of all the things that you just talked about, the emotional letdown, Wyoming being a tricky team. Like their system is one thing, but the fact that they are filled with fifth and sixth year guys, many of whom have that farm boy strength. They've also got a big contingent from the state of Texas, guys that they recruited out of high school. Like this is a a smart, well-coached football team that went in with a very specific game plan that was to make the game ugly on both sides of the ball. And credit to them because they accomplished that for three quarters of the game before talent ultimately won out. Where the optimistic uh, optimism comes into play for me, Jeff, it's two areas. And we'll start on the defensive side of the ball. This Texas defense is so good right now that you are going to find yourself in games where maybe you shouldn't be close, leading, whatever the situation is, giving yourself a chance to either pull away or take a lead later in the contest. It's just silly how good they are. The defensive line didn't necessarily have a dominant performance on Saturday night. They had some nice moments, but they were going up against a, a pretty big Wyoming offensive line that has played a lot of reps together. Regardless of that, though, you still saw solid efforts out of Jalen Ford. Thought David Benda had a great game. Uh, Maurice Blackwell doesn't play, unfortunately. Anthony Hill has the one bad moment at the beginning of the game. That was really the reason why Wyoming scored their one touchdown. He ends up getting pulled and not really seeing the field for a whole lot for a quarter plus after that. But even the secondary obviously did a great job of not letting the Wyoming receivers getting by them. And uh, they had a couple of, they had the one break moment with the early run. But other than that, Wyoming didn't even average three yards a carry on the ground going forward. And while Wyoming's quarterback looked better than Quinn Ewers throughout the course of the night, unfortunately, it's not like he had a stellar contest either. And boy, it's hard to pick out the next great defensive back at the place that we like to think of as DBU, but we can safely say that Jade Barron is that guy right now. Longhorn fans, enjoy him for 
the next nine plus games while you can, because he most certainly should be earning an NFL paycheck next year. If you if you weren't going to mention him, that was the he was one of two guys I was going to bring up. Jade Jade Baron, and then the other Baron Baron Sorrell. Yeah. Um. I mean, starting with Jade, man, like as a guy that that played defensive back in high school, significantly worse than than he than he does right now. But I just I love his mindset. My and Sark brought this up too, where it's just hit the physicality that he gives them in that nickel position is, I mean, it's incredibly valuable. And you know his his ball skills. I mean, just skills and coverage, the skills as a skills as a tackler. I mean, all all those kind of things. I mean, the dude had team high nine tackles, which you don't want your you don't want your nickel or one of your DBs to be the leading tackler every week. You'd like that to you know probably be a linebacker, defensive lineman, or something like that. But I thought he was awesome. And the one thing I like about him and kind of getting to interact with him a little bit is, I mean, I'll be honest, he doesn't really say much in the interviews, hmm. like in terms of a TV tape, like good soundbite type thing. But I I love his aura. Like I love his, it's like a quiet confidence. Hmm. And it's one of those things too, that maybe if you said that to some of the other guys in the locker room, like, that dude is not quiet, you know, <laughs> but at least the image that he portrays is, is that of like this quiet confidence. And there's even been moments where we're talking to him and, and somebody will bring up, oh, this dude's hard to tackle. You know, the scouting report type stuff for the team that they're playing this week. And he'll be like, I'm a pretty good tackler, man. You know, and it's just little things like that where you're like, that's the confidence that you want in a DB. And I think that spreads throughout to younger guys, whether, you know, it's Terrence Brooks who, you know, had a couple tough moments, had the PI down there. Um, I just think over time, like that permeates throughout the defense. Jalen Ford's the same way. I think David Benda's getting to that point. Um, and then just to talk about Sorrell a little bit, he made a couple plays in that game where um, I, was, I was talking to you earlier about how when I'm down there getting video for the station, it's awesome to have that view and that perspective. But you kind of miss a little bit of like, you know, the up top angle, you can see, oh, this guy took a bad angle. This guy took a good angle, different things like that. And when I went back and watched, I was like, he took some incredible angles there where maybe he didn't even get credit for a sack because he just chased the guy out of bounds and he got a one yard gain or two yard gain. But then he did. He did have the sack. Where if he doesn't have that sack, Wyoming might take the lead, and and then it's really like, oh shit, you know, in that stadium of, holy cow, like we're down fourteen to ten in the fourth quarter to Alabama a week. That's uh, Wyoming a week after we beat Alabama. So yeah, those two guys really stood out on the defensive side of the ball for me. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the sack that he got. He may have had a second one when the when the quarterback ran out of bounds prior to the line. Well, he he didn't. For some reason, he didn't get credit for that. I don't know if it was because like it was right at or past the line of scrimmage. He should have gotten credit for that, but he didn't. It, it was definitely behind the line of scrimmage, but college may may address that differently from how the NFL does. Like yeah, may just get a minus two on the rushing attempt, and nobody gets credit for a sack or a tackle for a loss. I don't know, but he should have though because he's the yeah. reason why a quarterback ran out of bounds. But that sack and doing post game on Saturday night, Jeff, we called that our defensive player of the game. Like it was a no doubter as great as, as Baron was as nice as that Jaron Thompson interception return for a touchdown was and really icing the game. That was that pivotal moment where you're right. That's palpable tension heading into the fourth (laughs) quarter. There would have been some rabble rousing going on in the stands to go along with that tension as the clocks struck zero at the end of the third for Texas to be losing at Wyoming at that point in time. So that was massive. 
And he is a, a confident dude and a guy that a lot of people expected to see really break out this year. We obviously have nine more regular season games to go. I'm not going to be surprised to see him really build on the performance this last weekend and do some really nice things in the next couple of weeks against Baylor, Kansas, and beyond. Well, the other thing that I think is a great sign for that defense is it's been a different guy pretty much every week so far, a couple different guys like Sorrell had been kind of quiet for a little while, Yeah, you know, for, for, I mean, we played three games, you know, but through the first two games he had played well, but he hadn't necessarily made those huge impact plays. That was Ethan Burke. That was Anthony Hill against Alabama. It was obviously Jalen Ford um, in the opener. And then again at Alabama and even, you know, John a bear and other guys that, that we've mentioned, but I think that's a great sign for this defense that not only are they making plays in huge moments at the end of these games that it's been a different guy you know for the first three games every time I think that's going to bode well and and those are the things where you know I think Texas fans would get impatient naturally you know you kind of see some of these other coaches come in and turn it around really quickly at other programs and you know to have five and seven then eight and five you know you're like okay what's going on like when are we going to finally see the fruits of this labor of this recruiting of this culture that you talk about and I think you're finally seeing that right now. We're like those drives. I know it's so cliche and it, I think that people eye roll at the culture and all that, you know, cause it is, it is cliche, but I do think you're seeing that right now. Like even going back to Alabama on the offensive side of the ball, I was texting our sports director, Bob Ballou from the field when they went down 16, was it 16 to 13? And then the JT Sanders long 50 yard catch and the AD Mitchell touchdown. I texted Bob from the field in Tuscaloosa. I was like, that was a back drive. Like that was a drive that I have not seen this team make. Yeah. And they're doing that. They're getting it done at the end of games. And again, still super early, but I think those are two great signs in in back-to-back weeks of this team closing games. Yeah. I, I think the word that can sum it up the best is resilience. This team has a grit about it right now that a lot of more emotionally fragile Texas teams have not exhibited for the better part of the last 14 years. Now, there are exceptions. The Sugar Bowl winning season is obviously a great example of that. But yeah, exactly. And I think that speaks also to the second silver lining of the second positive to come out of this game is, Jeff, you know this. You were down on the field last year, so you got to see it really up close and personal which gives you a better vantage point and a better feel than what we can see on television. A lot of times last year when Quinn is struggling like that and not on the same page as his wide receivers, it all goes completely downhill because he naturally, it's not RDF. It's not resting dick face. It's not the affliction. (laughs) But he's got like resting pouty face. I'm not sure what you call it. Resting cranky face a little bit, maybe. I mean, you know. Cranky face, maybe. Yeah, he just looks like he is he's deep in thought about something that's really saddening him. Like he doesn't look angry necessarily. And, and that can come across as indifference. But last year as that, as his bad play was happening, that was kind of the look on his face. And people were seeing that as uh, something that was less than confident or him maybe not staying engaged enough, even though it was a struggle on Saturday, he was remaining very engaged. He was super pumped up when we went into the end zone for that touchdown. Shame on that ref, by the way, for telling him to yeah. call him He wasn't trash talking anybody. He was showing some excitement. He was, he was flexing out. in front of the fans. He he could not have been doing anything remotely close to taunting. I mean, that was right in front of all the all the all of our local cameras right there. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, thanks, thanks for ruining a great 15 seconds of video, ref. Oh, you were you were right in front of that play, too. We were right there, and he was gonna come up and you know. Like that's what you want as a camera guy. Like you want to come up and like like uh, Murph Byron Murphy 
came up and did the flex right in front of a couple of our cameras. And you're like, that's awesome. Oh, man, I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous right now that you get that vantage point for certain plays. Do you have a favorite one of those moments? I mean, the Murphy one was awesome, but like one of those moments, dang. Um, I don't know. Like maybe when I, I mean, this is kind of lame, but like when I was in Mississippi, I covered Cam Akers when he was in high school, which, which you can imagine how, not that he's tearing up the NFL, but you saw what he did in college. You can imagine how unfair that was. There was a couple moments like that where, and you know, in high school, you like when you're covering high school, you get to know the kids and all that. He would come up and like, just do stuff like that in front of the camera. And you're like, Oh man, like this is a, like, it's just, it, it's an awesome feeling when they come right into the camera You know, they come right at you. So I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll think about that and, and get back to you. But Texas ones, I, I don't know if there's one that's like, I don't know if they've scored a big enough touchdown yet while I've, while I'm covering them to be like, I don't, that's not a shot. It's just like, like it would be one. Cause that was when I, when I was talking about with acres was in the state championship game and it was like his seventh touchdown. So yeah, I'll, I'll get back to you on that. Hopefully maybe I'll be like, yeah, that, that Quinn to Xavier worthy, go ahead, touchdown in the playoff, you know, in Pasadena, maybe that'll be the one later on. Oh man, that would be a beautiful thing. But uh, to, to the point though, like he was fired up there yeah. and like as they started to get it going and, and figuring it out in the fourth quarter and they did start to take that game over, Quinn was the first guy going up to dudes, congratulating him and, and making sure that guys understood that they had just done something that they were able to overcome a uh, temporary moment of failure. And I think that really bodes well going forward too. Quinn Ewers has proven himself up to this point, Jeff, that he plays his best ball when the lights are brightest. Now, granted, Texas is not playing against a ranked Baylor team next weekend, but it is a hostile crowd in Waco, as it always is and certainly will be for their last opportunity to face the Longhorns in this conference. So it may be the last home game between Texas and Baylor for a while, but it's also an ABC game. So it is nationally televised. You have that broader network audience. So I, I expect Quinn to bounce back in a major way next week. And regardless of how Sark calls the game at the beginnings, uh, because he know because we know through three games of this year, he is trying to throw to set up the run, whether it's more of a 50-50 split or he's running a little bit earlier on. I think when Quinn does get those opportunities, he's going to make the most of them. Well, and you mentioned Sark a little bit there. I think he deserves a little bit of credit for growth on his part too, because, you know, he's talked about, he looks at himself in the mirror more critically than, than anybody else, which I think is how most coaches would, would characterize that, which is how it should be as well. When you're, you're leading a program of this caliber like Texas, but I do think, I mean, I've got to give him a little bit of credit because we criticize the guy to no end on like, Oh, well sick. You have seven days to draw up, you know, this awesome eight play drive to start the game or a couple plays against the defense and then he wouldn't adjust. Yeah. Like to me, going back to closing out these games, that's a sign of growth to where you can say, like, hey, you're making the adjustments, or you're at least helping and putting people in the right place, coordinator, position coach wise, whatever it may be, to scheme up adjustments in the middle of the game. Um, but just on Quinn too, like <laughs> I was, you know, he 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 struggled. He struggled in the Wyoming game. But he made the plays when he needed to make the plays. I mean, I'm not gonna give him too much credit on the Xavier Worthy one. That was just Xavier being different, but he, I think his, his demeanor is something that, that I criticized a lot of last year because I want my quarterback to be like Sam Ellinger from an intangibles outward standpoint and all those kind of things where I'm just like, you know, this is the dude, he's an alpha, he's the man. And I think you need a certain bit of that when you're a quarterback, like you kind of have to have some of that. 
And I criticized him a little bit for maybe not having some of that. And a lot of it too is probably just he was he's young. That may not be in his nature right away, but we're seeing that now. And as much as I'm like, man, I don't say like I can roll my eyes a little bit at like him getting that fired up. But then I had to like slap myself and be like, that's what you've been wanting to see from him this entire time is taking that ownership, showing that passion. Like, you know, I think he's finally finding himself too, which not to get too deep, but like, that's another thing that we probably don't give these kids enough credit for is like, what, what's the dude? Like, he's like 20 years old, man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> these guys are, they are, they're not kids, but they are very, very young adults. And I think he's finding himself and I think he's being empowered in that locker room to be the leader and not look over his shoulder at Arch and Malik and, and those guys behind him. Cause there's a ton of talent behind him too. So you could have that mindset of man, like you've seen, you seen Malik Murphy, you see this dude. I mean, that dude's built like a Greek God, you know? And then, Oh, that, that dude behind him, you know, he's got Manning on the back of his Jersey. So I love what I've seen from, from Quinn Ewers, even in, you know, a pretty, pretty sloppy game against Wyoming. I mean, a lot of overthrown passes and things like that, but those are the inconsistencies that hopefully he'll clean up. Did you get a chance to speak with him after the game? We did a little bit. We caught like the last two minutes of, of his post game. And that's another thing I've got to try to, I've got to try to remove myself from a little bit is like, okay, just cause a guy like doesn't like speaking to the media and he's never said that out loud, but you can just kind of tell when a guy doesn't like speaking to the media. Um, and he doesn't give great sound bites and he's short and quick, like probably smart on his part to do that. And I've got to, I've got to remove myself from that and be like, that, that's not necessarily apathy or indifference. It's just, you know, him probably wanting to just get that done and not give any bulletin board material, but he's gotten a lot better with that. You can tell he's more comfortable and that is a part of the job. Like you are the, you are the face of the program. You are the face of the biggest brand in college football and I think he's, we're seeing him right before our eyes grow into that role. Hmm. That's a good way to put it. I lucked out and got him for 10 minutes at Big 12 Media Days. And you, could, you think? You could feel that discomfort at the start <laughs> of the conversation, but he was more of a willing answerer. And so I kind of shifted to more like fun, personal type stuff. Like obviously everybody's talked about the mullet and get, getting cut off. So I'm like, yeah, yeah my son's growing a mullet out. To you right now, what do you think about uh, you starting a mullet trend all across Austin, which you got a kick out of? And we talked about the dietary stuff and like something that he still likes to to binge on from time to time when he's having a cheat day. Like, what do you like to indulge in? And what do you say? Restaurants too. And at that point, I was like, I feel like we could have another ten minute conversation. Of course, the UT Media guys, you know, <laughs> they, were, they were gracious enough to bring him over, so I wasn't going to take advantage of that. Like I did with your mark. I kept your mark for 30 minutes, even though I told him 20. But uh, it was cool to see uh, Quinn Ewers open up a little bit more like that. So I'm glad that has remained the case this year. And that's that's a part of him stepping into that bigger role, too, by the way. Like he is literally living out a dream right now. This yeah. is a kid who grew up wanting to play quarterback for the Texas Longhorns. And it's happening. And he also gets to make NIL money at the same time, which is uh, really cool. But with that comes a lot of pressure. He didn't handle it well last year. He admitted as much that he, he would have criticisms yeah. and let that get to his head. He is hopefully doing a better job of deflecting the criticisms this year while also having a stronger belief in self and making more of a concerted effort 
to step in and tell guys when they're doing something good or maybe when things doesn't go cleanly at the end of a practice like what we heard this summer how the offense I think failed at the end of a practice and everybody was kind of walking back towards the locker room he's like hold on no we're doing this one more time we're going to get this right first uh, to see that is going as far as whatever positive play we see on the field with regards to what he might be able to accomplish here and what, if we're lucky Longhorn fans, this is his last year here in Austin. Yeah. Hopefully he puts forward a good enough season. Texas maybe makes some post postseason noise where he has a decision to make about going into the NFL draft. That is best case scenario for folks right now, as much as it would suck to see guys like him and JT Sanders and John A. Barron and maybe an Xavier Worthy submit their names to the NFL draft. That means they Texas has possibly four or more first round draft picks when it's all said and done. I think something uh, something else about Quinn that I said during the offseason, and I know it sounds like total just absolute blasphemy, but I think Bijan and Roshan leaving, I'm not saying at all that that makes them a better team, but I think that that helped his development. And I'm not going to be like, I mean, having an absolutely generational running back like Bijan Robinson and another stud in Roshan was like stunting his growth necessarily. That might be taking it a little too far, but it probably was stunting his growth a little bit as a leader because last year, I think he had so many moments where it's like, Hey man, I need to step up and take this team, but he's a quieter guy by nature. He wasn't playing particularly well, or I mean, he was playing well, but he wasn't playing consistently. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes it tough. Then when you have guys like Bijan and Roshan, who are the leaders of the team to come in and be like, Hey, no, your example of get your ass back on the practice field. Like we got to finish this the right way. We got to finish this, the way it needs to be done. I think that's hard to do when you have a Roshan who's very vocal. And then you have a Bijan who maybe not as vocal in terms of getting in guys' faces, but, you know, was a great leader and insanely respected in his right. So I think that helped him when those guys left the building to just kind of be like, dude, this really is your team. Like you are the leader. You are the face of the program. Like go out and and now like take the mantle and act as such. And I think we're seeing him do that. All right, I've had this question asked a couple times on the YouTube comments line. Where's my battery at? Jeff, if you missed this, as the start of Trey and BK. I realized that my mom accidentally took my computer charger. I don't have a backup because this is a newer computer. But <laughs> the good news is that I'm at 56% right now. So we'll definitely make it to two when BK is back at his computer if there's an emergency situation. But because we started at 75% at noon... I'm confident in saying yeah. that the computer is going to make it all the way to three o'clock when Zay and Chip take over. So I'm not great at I'm not great at math, but I I like the chances there. Yeah, the chances are good. Uh, there's CB asking that. Where is the other thing you said, CB? Oh, there we go. Chris Bennett said it's weird hearing Jeff <laughs> us. Yes, I we had various odds on the first cuss word that you and really anybody who uh, joins the channel for the first time would use. You went with the shit bomb. Oh. I think a good first choice there. Hopefully I made hopefully I made some betters happy if somebody had like plus two seventy-five on that, maybe. I think Bucky probably lost the bet, but that's because Bucky loses all the bets that he makes <laughs> these days. But uh, yeah, the S bomb. Are, are you are you into the sports betting tray? I'm not, man. It's um I will engage engage very occasionally. And I guess I do a fantasy football league for money. Yeah. So a survivor league for money. But in terms of week in and week out betting. You're, you're in our picks league too. Picks league, yep, that's another yeah. good one. God, I'm terrible in that league. I missed the first week last year, and I was playing from behind the rest of the way as as Ofer. But you're always near the top of that bad boy. 
but I never win any money. I mean, I put a little bit of scratch like on each game individually, so I'll be up slightly over the course of the year. But it's so frustrating because some of these other dudes will go like seven and one a bunch of weeks, and then you know they'll just go like three and five or whatever, and that that's their bad week. I'm just always hovering in that. Like I went five and three this week, five and three last week, four and four, three and five. You know, so it's just it's like man, I can't get that that one big one. I'm just like the most mediocre gambler in the history of gambling, I guess. Which is probably eighty percent of people that do it just either come somewhat close on either end to breaking even. Yeah, mediocre. Well, I mean, the house is looking for just that slight advantage, right? If they win 55% of the time, they're still taking more people's money than not. And I'm a terrible gambler, by the way. My wife and I are going to Vegas in November to celebrate her brother's birthday. And I'll do blackjack here and there, but I'm an impatient gambler when when you're talking about like gambling over and over again. Win or lose, I'm just ready to bet more. Like if I lose, I'm ready to win that money back. When I win, I'm like, all right, let's let it ride. Let's let's get it. <laughs> go even bigger here. So fantasy and doing weekly picks, that is the perfect speed for me. I'm the opposite of you though. I'm I'm very much mediocre to poor. So I'm right around 500 for the year usually, but I'll almost always have one or two weeks where I end up going seven and one or the occasional six and two where you're splitting the <laughs> pot with like 30 other people. That, uh, that helps me make my money back for the year. Yeah, I think there were like 10 guys in our league this week that are going to, they're each going to get like $9.99 from, right. from Bob or something. <laughs> yeah, kudos to Bob too, by the way, for uh, for setting all of that up. But yeah, no, but ga- gambling is not, not really my thing. I, I have plenty of friends who do it, but I like being able to watch the games and not have to worry about uh, my fa- finances being on the line. Yeah, and I've, I've gotten to the point where it's just like, it's not really worth what how mad I get when I lose is not made up for by how happy I am and how financially whole I am when I win. So I'm just like, yeah, I'll put like 10 bucks on the game and whatever, you know? Yeah. Look, the alternative is, is getting in too deep. And all of a sudden you find yourself betting on a WNBA game in the dead of summer. And you're like, what am I doing with my life? You know? Well, I, I got called a sicko this week for betting golf, the Fortinet championship. There was like a fall PGA tour schedule. And I got called a sticko for betting that in the middle of football season by some of my buddies. And I have like a chat where we'll text picks or whatever. They're talking about like, oh, I got like Ole Miss covering. And I'm like, saw Gala at the Fortinet Championship. And they're like, you are. And he won. But they're like, you're an absolute sicko. How did you know? How did you feel so confident to where you put money on that? I mean, I, he, he was like the fourth. He had like the fourth best odds. Okay. Um, I mean, I've only I mean, winning outright in golf is insanely tough. But, you know, I'll do like some I'll sprinkle in some other like top 20s and little like prop bets and stuff. Yeah. Golf, if, you, if you're into it, is actually really fun to bet. There's a million things that you can do, you know, matchups and all that kind of stuff. But do you play also? Yeah, I've been casually. Uh, How casually? Wish I'd, wish I'd I, mean, I try to play like a couple times a month. So, OK, what's the what's the average score around? You cracking 90? Yeah, yeah, like uh, barely. I'll break. I'll uh, shoot in the high seventies once, twice a year, maybe. Wow. And then every other time, it's between eighty and ninety. About. Okay. Well, you're way better than I am. I play once <laughs> or twice a year, and it's it's ugly. But that's almost a better way to do it. Then you just get too into it, like me, and then you're like, "Why do I suck?" And it's like because I don't have time to play, and I don't practice. You know, at least if you go out like once or twice a year, you're like, just drink a bunch of beers and see what happens. 
Yeah, well, that's the problem is it's too big of a time commitment. I just don't have even to go out and play nine holes. I don't have those those two to three hours to burn most weekdays at this point. And when the weather is decent enough to go play on the weekends, that's where the course gets entirely too crowded, too. Oh, yeah. And then everybody's out there. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, anything else you wanted to talk about with regards to the Longhorns, positives or negatives on either side of the ball? Um, I mean, from this past game, well, I mean, we talk about Xavier Worthy for a minute and just <laughs> that dude is just, it's just different. You know, I, when I, when I watch back that play from the TV, from the Longhorn Network TV angle up top, I mean, how did he score a touchdown on that play? How in the world? It, that insanity. I mean, that guy, it felt like all you had to do is just push him out of bounds, but that's, that's those extra gears that he has. And, you know, um, I think, uh, I think AD Mitchell said this in the preseason of, you know, he's got his skill set and all that, but with, with Worthy, man, it's, it's just a, it's speed on a different level. And it's fun to see what he's doing so far this year. Cause I think he, uh, you know, I, I think he can, I think he can even take it up a level and they probably will. Uh, that's the other thing that I don't want to give Stark too much of an out for the game plan. Cause I don't think you're holding anything back at this point by week three, but mm-hmm. probably had something to do with it. Cause you know, I mean, what did you think of the play calling and just the way, the way it went, it felt like it just felt like they could never get in a rhythm. Like they'd get in too many of these like third and longs and those kind of things. I, the very first drive of the year for this Texas football team, it annoyed me that they threw four straight downs on what turned into a four and out, including on that fourth and short, because you did feel good about this Texas rushing attack, even without Bijan Robinson and Roshan Johnson. So to a degree, I've accepted that Texas is going to throw a lot on early downs and throw a lot early in the game too. I will say that I was encouraged that Sark eventually got his head out of his ass and started running the ball more in the second half. Like I think Sark last year struggles to do that. I think he continues to try and jam that square peg into the round hole. Right. And we see Quinn just start misfiring, not really even really all over the field, misfiring to Quinn uh, to uh, Xavier worthy over and over again. So the fact that he was more willing to run the football is sign of progress. It also let us understand as fans who have opinions about who should be playing or what role a certain guy should have, that Jonathan Brooks needs to be the starting running back going forward, even when CJ Baxter is healthy. And I use bell cow with BK and maybe that's not totally accurate because bell cow gets all the carries and he's maybe as close as Texas has to a bell cow while making sure to mix in CJ Baxter as a hard running change of pace and then maybe occasionally blue or Savion Red might have earned himself some more opportunities too with that wildcat formation that he ran successfully a couple of times on Saturday. I'm trying to get Red Cat started. I know well, I like that crazy about the color red, but it just seems to be a natural fit. Jonathan Brooks does need to be the guy to start games out, though. He is yeah. that well-rounded, and he's also like not, it's not even about being well-rounded. He is a good running back. He's yeah, just su- he's just super solid. Yeah. Like there's not there's no big strength, there's no big weakness with him. But I think I said this to Bob yesterday. I was like, man, it's it's just unfair to him that that we watched Bijan Robinson and Roshan Johnson last year. Cause I feel like it almost it almost hinders my evaluation of him where I'm like, man, he's just not like I just there's just something missing. And it's like, 
No, there's nothing missing. He's a really good college running back. He's just yeah. not Bijan Robinson. He's just not generational. And even, I mean, it's way too early to tell on Baxter, but completely agree with you on Brooks because, man, like, I mean, for Baxter to go out back-to-back games, I mean, his first two college games, he he showed some flashes. Um, definitely seems like he has better hands than Brooks, at least out of the backfield. Uh, but I think, I just don't know if he's ready for an entire workload at the college level. So this could be this could be great for him to, you know, maybe go 75% bell cow on Brooks and then just kind of ease him in where he has one of those seasons where maybe he comes on strong at the end or, I mean, knock on wood, like if something happens to Brooks, then he can come in and you can try to kind of force him into that role. Um, but yeah, totally agree on on Brooks needing to be the main guy right now. He's just, he's more mature. He's he's not as talented, but he's he's the guy right now. And Baxter will get there when he's ready. Yeah, he will. And we heard whenever he committed to Texas and signed that letter of intent and came in in the spring that he is a guy who will earn reps this year. But he's also somebody who's really going to benefit from a couple of years in the strength and conditioning program to get the right sort of weight on for the style with which he runs. He runs hard. We saw a couple of he's a big guy collisions in that Alabama game early in the game too. this very first touch of the game. It was that pass out to the flat and he took it about 10 yards and he got hit hard by the Alabama defender, but he hit that guy as hard as he was hit. (laughs) And he did that a couple of times early on. And you could tell that he had maybe lost half a step at some point in the game to where he wasn't as willing a, uh, an initiator of those collisions going forward. Now, when you're talking about that sort of running style and letting him come in to spell Jonathan Brooks, who has already done a good job of starting to wear the defense down in a given driver throughout the course of the game, that all of a sudden becomes that much more effective too. Oh, for sure. And with Baxter, man, it's like, this is second. I mean, Rice is a physical defense too. Um, that's yeah. a, obviously a huge step up above, above high school. He gets banged up in that game, and then he comes back into the Alabama game, and then it's like, I mean, my gosh, you're playing against a Nick Saban defense after that. So I think it, it's it sounds obvious and kind of stupid to say, but like when you're playing the high school level, you might play two teams, maybe three teams a year. And I know he played in Florida, and I think in the Orlando area where there's probably tons of talent. But even out here, I'm just thinking of Austin, like, like even like the guys at Vandergrift or Westlake here, you might play three or four teams until you get to the playoffs and even including the playoffs. Cause you might play some bad teams there that have like more than four D one D two ish prospects on their team. So mm-hmm. now it's like, like you said, you come in and I don't care if you got here in January or not, like that's not enough time to get you ready to just get smacked around by college level players, um, you know, and get 15 carries a game, you know, let alone those the guys hitting you being Alabama players that have been there for a couple of years. So I, I, I like what I see from the running game overall. And um, I'm sure I think Sark wouldn't really answer that in terms of workload. He was asked after the game. Um, he wouldn't commit to like, Oh, how many snaps is each guy going to play? But I think we'll probably see Brooks run out there as, as the, as the main back. Yeah. I don't fault Sark for giving away his game plan for next week. You want to keep things as coy as possible. Sark does a good job of balancing giving heartfelt answers at times with giving complete bullshit answers to (laughs) being done in a way that's protecting his team. Do you agree with that as somebody who actually gets to sit front and center for it? I totally agree with that because I think his, 
there the the only thing is like sometimes from a TV standpoint, I wish that he would joke a little more and give us some of those like cold opens that can you know like a soundbite off the top coming out of his commercial break that'll like I know Bob loves those and I love them too because it just gets you it just gets you into more of something fun and you know he doesn't give you a ton of those but I feel like if he gives you coach speak he dresses it up really nicely hmm. which is something you can't say for for every coach and and also I to your point I do think he does give you an honest answer and if he's not going to answer something I think he just kind of says that too he doesn't try to give you a with threats to our nation waiting around every corner adaptability is more important than ever when conditions change without notice quick strategic thinking is crucial and with obstacles consistently impending determination is essential in overcoming them it's this willingness decisiveness and resilience that sets marines apart with our fighting spirit we don't just fight battles we win them marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown and through adaptable problem solving we do just that learn more at marines.com a bs sort of you know run around on it like when he was asked about the running backs he's just like i said he's just like i'm not going i'm not going to commit to that basically like I'm not going to tell you that. And it's like, okay, you know, our job to ask, your job to probably withhold that information. So kind of um, not that I'm a beat reporter asking a million questions at every press conference, but from those guys' standpoint, I I think it's definitely like a, a little bit of a cat and mouse. Huge beat reporter pet peeve of mine. I apologize if any of the beat reporters feel like they're taking strays right now, but you guys know what you're doing too. <laughs> it's when a coach is clearly doesn't want to answer a question. You try and ask it like four or five different ways. <laughs> But it's still the same question at its foundation. It's like, guys, can we just please move on to the next question? You're, not, you're, you're trying to play this gotcha game here, and he, he doesn't want to engage. Yeah, and there's times where it's like you got you know you do have to ask about certain things. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to even think off the top of my head of something that was like semi. Um, I can't even think of anything lately that was particularly contentious um, because Sark couldn't talk about it. But yeah, there's there's times where. You know, just ask once and maybe somebody else throws a question in after that. But, but yeah, we don't need to harp on it. So I'm trying to think of anything else with the Texas Longhorns. Oh, something that may speak to this team running the football a little bit more early in games or early down in distance situations is the injury issue that has cropped up on the offensive line. Cole Hudson goes down. I want to say it was in the first half of that game, and it didn't look good. Like, one, he gets rolled up on, and just the replay looked bad, but also how he got up, how his knee wobbled, how he went back down, and then the help which he was needed, which was needed to get him off the field, all looked like something that might be long-term. Well, according to Steve Sarkeesian today, both he and uh, Christopher Ross, it looks like they're going to be out around three to four weeks with Ross's injury being more of the elbow variety. And I don't know if he specified. I mean, it's clear that it's a knee, but it's obviously a lower body injury for Cole Hudson right now. But because of that, it's next man up, DJ Campbell, who gets to start the very first game of the year. He will be back in the starting lineup again. It's been a mixed bag for DJ Campbell through these first three games. We saw some good out of him versus Wyoming. We also saw him completely blow his assignments on what needed to be a pass block on a guy who ran free and got a good shot on Quinn Ewers. So right now, DJ Campbell, former five-star recruit, is a better run blocker than he is a pass blocker. So that maybe that encourages you to think about running a little bit more in those situations where they've seen them pass up to this point. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think the we went into this season talking about that depth up front on the offensive line. And 
we're going to see, we're going to see if that's really real right now. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, and, and, you know, I mean, <laughs> Dave Aranda, a defensive guy is going to see that and target that. It's kind of like on the outside when a cornerback goes down and you throw in the freshman, they're going to target that guy immediately. So, yeah, I think, uh, I'm not, I just, I mean, I know we're not talking about Baylor specifically right now, but I just don't, I don't think it's going to hurt Texas too much this week. Um, we'll find out, but it, it gets to that point quickly where you're like, if there's any more injuries, then there's going to be some serious concern. Maybe right about that. By the way, Dave Aranda met with the media a little bit earlier. It looks like Sawyer Robertson, not really a surprise to anybody, but Sawyer Robinson will start at quarterback for the Bears against the Longhorns, and that is something that benefits Texas. Obviously, Blake Shapin repped Baylor at Big 12 Media Days this year. This is going to be his... Uh, second full year as a starter for this Baylor football team. He's had some up and downs. It's almost like he's a, a poor man's or is it a rich man's Charlie Brewer in terms of him showing <laughs> moxie, but also needing to slide at times to keep himself upright and healthy. This wasn't one of those situations that knocked him out for maybe a month, but he will be missing another game. And so you get the Mississippi State transfer instead, Jeff. And I'm sure this talented Texas defense is licking their chops that they get to go up against a backup quarterback, another backup quarterback this week. Yeah, and at least they can truly prepare for this one. I mean, I'm not saying they didn't last week, but you know going in now, okay, we have <clears throat> we have game tape on this guy. And yeah, they've. I mean, that defense has got to be, especially after, I know we talked about how well they played and how well Sorrell played, but they only had one sack in that yeah. game. I mean, tons of pressures, but they've got to be licking their chops to – get this dude, get to this dude, hit him, pressure him, and then actually get him on the ground too. And I don't know. I kind of feel like I'm a big, uh, I'm a big believer in spots and, and maybe not trends in this case, but I just think this is a really good spot for Texas and look down the line at the schedule. There's, there's going to be a lot of those. And I mean, to come off of this game where, you know, you, you had the Bama win and then the Wyoming letdown, if you will. But, you know, you made it look respectable at the end. I think they're going to come in like, okay, like we, we we can't do that crap again, you know. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is a pretty big Texas win because, I mean, it's not like Baylor. What would they play? LIU Brooklyn? Which, yeah. which, by the way, how do you even, how does that happen, Trey? Like, how are you like, hey, we, we need another game. Like, like, I feel like this is like, like high school when these coaches put like, um, you know, like whatever ISD, like whatever high school needs a Elling high school needs a, needs a game. Like, Oh, Barker high school's free for, you know, week three. Like let's meet up. Like how does Baylor play LIU Brooklyn? It seems like there would take a lot of effort to go into something like that. It's like the guys who got zero zero in college, like it took a concerted effort for them to get a 0.0. It took an effort to yeah. school. Long Island, whatever the hell university like of all the FCS schools that you could have picked up the phone and called from Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, all of them. It's just, I would love to know the backstory behind how that game got scheduled. There almost certainly has to be something. There is a relationship behind the scenes that LIU, whatever <laughs> ended up taking advantage of. And they got a nice payday out of it too, by yeah. the way. And and it's like if you're going to hook hook these schools up with paydays, let's let's help our brothers and sisters out elsewhere across the state, or maybe even the region. If we want, want a fan outside of Texas at all, it's not like all of a sudden that is you know this university is going to be a threat to you. Although I say that, and I also remember what happened with Baylor 
their very first game of the year, losing to Texas State like they did, which theoretically is an inferior opponent. So maybe Baylor made a, a last second change <laughs> of uh, change of opponent to ensure their first victory of the year. Yeah, somebody there said, "Hey, if we're gonna if we're gonna schedule these, these need to be guaranteed wins." <laughs> oh man, that's too crazy. Rest of the Big Twelve with a few exceptions, did not look very good this weekend. And what we all thought at the start of the year is turning out to be true. This is a down year for this conference. The Longhorns and Sooners' final year in the Big 12. And as it stands right now, Jeff, with Kansas State losing to an okay Missouri team on that last-second 61-yard field goal, the cream of the crop in this conference right now, at least three weeks into the season, is the Longhorns and Sooners. Trey, if if Texas doesn't win the Big 12 this year, I will, for once and for all, finally feed into the people that just say this program is cursed. Like, if they can't win the Big 12 this year, I saw somebody, I can't remember, it was one of the one of the writers or um I can't remember who, but somebody was like, if this if this Texas team, this is before the season, like if this Texas team can't win 10 games, then I don't think they ever will ever again. Yeah. Obviously, slight hyperbole there, which I'm a big fan of, you know. Hey, but hyperbole I mean, can be a, a valuable tool. Yeah, and in this case, man, it's like, like if you you look at the schedule. I don't want to overlook this Baylor team like we were just talking about, but I mean, how you looked at the Big Twelve scores were like Miami of Ohio, I think, beats Cincinnati. Um, Ohio beats Iowa State. Oklahoma State loses to Major Applewhite in South Alabama 33-7. to seven. Yeah. Like, it, that game, I think, was 23 to nothing at one point. Like, as you, right when you guys, before you brought me on, you had Gundy, the, you know, the, the awesome where are we at in society intro. I mean, where are we at in Stillwater? Where are we at in the Big 12 right now? It's just an absolute joke right now with the way some of these teams are playing. And, look, maybe somebody gets Texas – Clips Texas and OU somewhere along the way, but um, I would not be surprised if this is 2018 all over again, where it's Texas and OU again in the Big 12 championship game. Which, how perfect would that be? Um, I remember when when you know we were spending the week before the season talking about all the your mark comments. I was like, how awesome would it be if it's? I mean, it'd be better if it was Sark accepting the trophy, but Sark or Venables taking the trophy from your mark on stage right there. Like just what a, what a perfect kind of full circle, like middle finger moment on the way out. Yeah. I've already predicted that Brett, your mark is going to surprisingly test positive for COVID the week of yeah. that game, that Thanksgiving week. But regardless, he may have no choice, but to show up and hand that trophy to either Steve Sarkeesian or Brent Venables when it's all said and done. I've heard some Longhorn fans say that they would be okay with, OU winning the Big 12 this year. I'm still not okay with that. That that goes a little bit beyond my uh, ability to support the Oklahoma Sooners. I don't want to see them win a conference championship, but and if this, it's petty of me. I get it. If this was the Texas team two years ago where you were like, it's year one under Sark and they end up going five and seven or whatever, then I could see being like, okay, hands off. We're headed to the SEC next year. You know, let's, let's just get a uh, Let's get one of us to the championship on the way out. Then I could see that. But no, this year, I mean, I I cannot stop looking at the rest of the Texas schedule and just going like this team. And I'm I'm more I lean more on the cynical. I mean, 
pessimistic side, kind of like you said earlier, where it's like, all right, like I'm like, I got to, I got to see it to believe it. That's how I was with Quinn before the Alabama game. And I totally was eating crow for an entire week going into the Wyoming game. But this is one of those where I, I can't help but look at it and go like, this team should be in the college football playoffs. Like I almost, I almost can't even believe I'm saying that out loud, but they can lose one game. Texas with their brand, their name notoriety. Like you can't tell me that, you know, their one loss is in the Red River rivalry or it's, I mean, I'm, you know, whatever, some big 12, some semi-respectable big 12 loss along the way. But like, yeah, I mean, what, what, what do you think when you look at that schedule? Are you, are you kind of licking your chops too? I think that the toughest stretch on this schedule is coming up here in just a couple of weeks. It's going to be the Kansas Jayhawks here in Austin. Yeah. And then the Oklahoma Sooners in Dallas. And I think that because you've got to figure out a way to move the football and score some points on this defense. And most of the offenses in the conference are not very good at right now. Now, Kansas State will pose a unique challenge for Texas. I do agree with that, but they're not quite as dynamic offensively as the Jayhawks are, where they can try and turn it into more of a shootout. And if it's one of those games where Quinn is off, the receivers and Quinn not on the same page, there's drops, there's balls being thrown behind guys. Uh, That game could get tricky. But if they make it through that, I'm weirdly less worried about Oklahoma right now, even though they pose more of a defensive threat. And it's still going to be a tough game. It is pretty much every year in Dallas. But I feel confident that they can run the table the rest of the way. I mean, you're some of the games where you're away from home, where they have been traditionally hard games for this football program to win, especially over the last 14 years, you're catching a break. And the Baylor this weekend is a perfect example of that. Like, is it going to be a raucous crowd? Absolutely. But Baylor's not very good at football right now. So kudos on that one. Houston is Houston. There'll be a large Texas contingent there. But at TCU, like TCU has been notoriously horrific for the Longhorns to go play that game in Fort Worth. TCU is very much down right now. They have to reload so much from that national championship runner-up last year, much of which was on the offensive side of the ball. They're still okay offensively. They still suck defensively too. (laughs) Iowa State, the week after that TCU game, yeah, that game normally scares me in Ames. Iowa State has one of the worst offenses that we've seen in the history of the Big 12, on top of the fact that Matt Campbell needs to do a little bit better job of controlling himself, not just on the sideline, but as his team is going into the locker room after losing to Ohio last Did he lose it? I didn't see that. There was some jackass fan who was screaming crap at him and said that he's on the hot seat, and Campbell turned (laughs) around and is having guys hold him back because he's about to go after this douchebag who had these ugly things to say and the guy's like looking at the camera and laughing. So it's not a good look for him, but Matt Campbell's had anger issues for the last couple of years now that I feel like are derailing his team's chances of winning games. So they're okay defensively this year. I'm telling you, they are awful on offense. They lost Hunter Deckers and they're starting running back to that gambling probe. They're relying on a redshirt freshman and a true freshman at quarterback right now and aren't much better across the board in terms of the depth chart on offense. Yeah, the only one with that is I just know I mean Matt Campbell's a hell of a coach. So you just hope that late in the year they don't they don't figure that out, you know, start figuring it out. But I certainly am not going to be losing sleep about that one. And I think that's kind of the point that we're both making is like you look at the schedule and you're just like I mean I I, I hate saying it because I think they'll get tripped up at some point. 
And until I really see it from a from a Sark team, not that I don't believe it can happen, but just going back to Washington, USC and all that, like I just I want to see them really just run through a schedule, you know, where there's always just been a few disappointing losses, a few like, man, how do you lose that game? You know, and I know going back to his Washington tenure, not always the fairest example to use because of how atrocious that program was when he took it over. So it really was impressive. But I mean, like, I think he beat Pete Carroll the first two years after he took over there. Hmm. Um, and I mean, I'm, you know, I can't, <clears throat> can't remember exactly what they did after that, but you know, my SC fan uh, buddies would just call him seven wins Sark back in the day. So you're in that <laughs> reputation too. I mean, dude, up until this year, the guy lost two out of every three games in two important situations to be successful as a college football coach. He lost two out of every three games against top 25 competition and two out of every three games against conference foes on the road. So he gets the chance to continue bucking that trend. Yeah. He already did so against Alabama a week and a half ago, a game that in a roundabout way actually checks both boxes because Alabama is a future conference opponent. But he gets a chance to further remove that monkey from his back this weekend when they go to Waco. And I know, Jake, you think it's going to be more of a neutral site game this weekend. Texas fans do travel to Waco. I give you that. But it will still be a majority Baylor fans who are going to be loud at the very beginning. So one of your goals needs to be to neutralize them early in the game. And you do that a couple of ways. You do that by continuing to play the defense that you have and hope that the offense is able to get it on track much quicker than they did in all three of their contests so far this year. I mean, even the Alabama game, obviously. There were some ups and downs there, too. But certainly those Rice and Wyoming matchups. I would I would love a deep shot just right off the bat in this game. Like, give me, a, give me one of those flawless Sark scripts that we've seen to open a game. You know, maybe a couple good Jonathan Brooks runs, maybe a quick first down somehow, and then just give me Xavier Worthy deep and just shut them up for the rest of the night. Like 14-23 on the clock, Xavier Worthy's in the end zone doing that Karate Kid celebration or whatever, and and it's like the crowd is just, you know, done. Like, and again, I don't know. I'm just, I'm a big fan. It's like going back to what I was saying about Quinn. And I, I, I like the alpha in a quarterback. And I think he's starting to develop that. I'm, I'm just a big going on the road like that. And not necessarily being reckless, but taking a big chance early. And just trying to like throw a huge punch right off the bat. Especially with a team that have a little more wiggle room. Because like you said, this is, this is just not right now a good Baylor football team. They're a well-coached. I mean, I have a ton of respect for Dave Aranda. They're a well-coached football team. They're just nowhere near the level of talent and experience of this Texas team. So go out and show them that and punch them in the mouth right away. Yeah, completely agree with that one. And uh, just taking a look at the uh, the national scene, Jeff, this was that first weekend where we really see some teams starting to unceremoniously fall. (laughs) Losing games that they should be winning, that they're favored to win. Another good example in the SEC of that with Tennessee losing to Florida. My goodness, how bad is Tennessee's offense if Florida is going to hold them down like that, that Florida defense? But that happens. Kansas State obviously loses Missouri, which we talked about. And uh, the the cream begins to rise to the top. Now, uh, did did you guys play Stanford this weekend or was that last weekend? And you guys were actually... That was last weekend, and there was a bye. Now, even though you're a, a Longhorn graduate, you grew up as a USC fan and still follow that program very closely. 
I said in the preseason that I felt like USC had the best chance of making it into the college football playoff of any team in the Power Five. And even though the Pac-12 is proving itself yeah. to be really talented this year, deep from top to bottom, I still feel good about that just because USC is so good offensively. And I feel like you are starting to see signs of that defense improving under Alex Grinch too. How do you see things right now from the Trojans' perspective? The only reason I, I disagree a little bit with that of who has the best chance to make the playoff is, I mean, and you, you mentioned it too, that schedule is gnarly. I mean, they have nine games left, six of them against ranked opponents. Um, I'm not particularly worried about Colorado, but we know that team has a ton of talent. They won't have Travis Hunter for that one. But I just think when you go down their schedule, I mean, man, it's at Colorado. Um can't remember a game right after that, but I mean, just going up, going down the line of the ranked teams that they have left, they go to Notre Dame, obviously a rivalry game, uh, just tons of, tons of hype around that game going to South Bend. I was lucky enough to go to a few of those games and experience that atmosphere. And it's, it's tough for SC teams to, to go in there and win no matter the level of talent. And then there's obviously you go to Oregon. They've had trouble with Utah, clearly, the last <laughs> two yeah. losses last year to Utah, one in the Pac-12 championship game. Yeah, I think with SC, the, um, we'll really find out coming up soon how much better that defense has gotten because there's tons of talent, but do they have that physical nature? I think that was the issue with Lincoln Riley defenses at OU, as everyone here knows, is they just kind of lack that physicality when they get in the playoff and then you know play a Georgia or play – you know, some of these some of these teams that are just more physical on the defensive side of the ball. They couldn't they couldn't match wits with them there physically. Here's what the schedule looks like for USC going forward. This weekend is at Arizona State. Talk about a bad program. I mean that that'll be Yeah, the that, fighting firm had Herm Edwards. But after that, you mentioned at Colorado, then Arizona at home, at Notre Dame, Utah at home, at Cal. Washington at home. And yeah, the one-two punch to finish the year. Washington at home and then yeah. at Oregon. I didn't even mention Washington. And then the UCLA game. And then you got to go win the Pac-12 championship after that. Oh, you're right. That is a one-two-three. I mean, punch. And then there. you're going to have to go play whoever else again, in the, like I said, a week later in that championship game. Interesting side note, though, because USC did play one of those week zero games against San, Diego, uh, San Jose State, excuse me, so their bye fell this last weekend. Mm-hmm. They have a second bye this year, and it is that last weekend of the regular season. So they they play UCLA on November 18th. So they're going to be off that next weekend. So they conceivably have a week's rest before playing in the Pac-12 championship game if they make it that far. Well, and I think they have the same. I think they have, they have the same path that Texas has, just a more difficult one where. You know, you can lose a game. You can lose one game somewhere along the way with this, with the last year of this four-team format in the playoff. So whether that's on the road at Notre Dame, on the road at Oregon, I mean, if you're if you lose two of those games, and even though you, even if you win the Pac-12, you're eleven and two after that. I mean, that's it's still going to be tough to get in because you know you might have a one-loss Florida State team, a one-loss Clemson team, or something like that. Somebody that gets way better down the stretch. Heck, even a one-loss Georgia team, I think that team's going to lose a game at some point. You know, They were close this weekend against South Carolina. They got their act together like Texas did in the fourth quarter to win it going away. But that was shockingly close up to a point. 
And there's there's games like that every year for I'm not putting Texas in the same category as Georgia yet, but you know, you could throw Florida State in with the Texas category of teams that are on the brink of really being back and kind of solidifying themselves in that in that playoff conversation. And all three of those teams that we just mentioned had really difficult games against teams that they probably should have blown out. I mean, Georgia played the best team of them all, um, but Georgia's supposed to be the best team of them all. So it th- this happens. Like, it happens in the NFL. It happens in college. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, I know it's the biggest cliche ever, but <laughs> the, two, the two cliches that I always like to throw out that we hear all the time are like, you know, it's just any given Saturday and – on the other side of the ball, like with Wyoming, like those those guys are on scholarship too. I think that was one that Mac used to love to throw out. <laughs> it's so eye roll, but it's true. It's true in this case. It's super eye roll though. Those guys are on scholarship too. Yeah. I just want to give them some of Sally's cookies, you know. <laughs> oh man, did you cover the end of the Mac Brown era? No, you you still would have been a student at that time, or you would have just now just been starting as a student. What, what so you- I got I got the last. I believe I got the last three. Um, so I was in college from 11 to 15. So yeah, that would have been first three years were the last three years for Mac for okay. me. And then the first year of Charlie. Um, and then I remember sitting on the couch when I was, cause I was in Mississippi for two years at a station over there. I remember sitting on the couch watching that Notre Dame game being like, man, I mistimed this. How, how wrong was I about that? That was, even though that turned out to be complete crap, like that was fall, a fake gold, I guess, if you will, because Notre Dame sucked that year and Texas wasn't good either. And Charlie Strong got fired at the end of the season. <laughs> and it was just so epic the way the game went down too. It is still legitimately one of my five favorite moments of being in that stadium. And I've seen probably a hundred games in that stadium at this point. That was so much fun. Yeah, I wish I, I, wish I was there for that one. I think you could throw in... Like some of the best atmospheres, 20, might have the years off on some of these. What, 2018, was that when SC came, yep. came here? Mm-hmm. Um, old JT Daniels, one of the one of the three teams he took into DKR and lost with. Yeah. Uh, and then LSU the next year. Man, how, how much did we get screwed by not being able to go to LSU the next year? Like how much fun would that have been? That, the that was a bummer. That was a really- that the return trip got canceled because of COVID. That was a real bummer because I was going to go to Baton Rouge. I was supposed to go to Tuscaloosa last weekend. It was a last-minute trip, and it would have been a huge pain, too, because I was leaving Austin at, like, 5.30 on Saturday morning, flying into Nashville, and then driving the three and a half hours from Nashville to Tuscaloosa. And then after the game, having to drive back because I had an early flight out on Sunday morning. Here's the thing, though. This book was tripped within the last two weeks. I had tickets for face value that were like 40-yard line, three rows up at that stadium. So it would have been great tickets. And I got first class both ways for $40 more than economy because they were just desperate to fill those seats. So I would have been flying in luxury too and not having to pay a couple of hundred extra bucks in the process. So what would you end up doing with the tickets? Like with the game tickets. I tried to sell the tickets on SeatGeek. I don't know if they could see that I was in Austin, but I couldn't even sell those tickets for face value. That's oh. So I think people just completely froze me out. Yeah. Buy the tickets from a Longhorn. And uh, I got uh, travel voucher credits from American because some stuff needed to happen on the Texas Sports Unfiltered end. On top of me just dreading 
how bad that would wreck me for the next week. It would have been worth it, though. I thought Texas was going to win the game. I predicted a double-digit win in pregame. Ultimately, that was right, and that's the reason why I was so ticked off at myself for just not sucking it up and going. But you know, um, Bob predicted a double-digit win, too. The whole the whole week leading up to that, he would just be, he would just come like walk by and be like double digits, double digits, and I was like, you are an absolute fool for that. And then you know, turns out turns out this guy's the fool. It felt like that game would go one way or the other. I didn't think it would be a close game again. I felt like Alabama would either win by double digits, and it's like, oh nope, this is still the same Texas program that we've become used to over the last decade plus. Or it would be the Longhorns coming out party. Thankfully, it was the latter. And I think it's another one of those examples that we can point to with Quinn Ewers that he does get his act together when the games matter a little bit more. And there are guys that are just like that, man. Yeah. Like, I hope he I hope he gets it going against lesser competition. Like that's gonna help us to uh to be able to watch these games with a little bit more ease than we did Wyoming or even Rice to a lesser degree. And I think that'll happen. But we can rest our laurels on the fact that. In the biggest games, he will most likely play his best ball. I mean, at the end of the, <clears throat> the end of the day, you want a guy that's you want a guy that's a gamer at that position. You know, like you said, you don't you want to see him play better and more consistently. But I'm I'm giving him a, I'm going to give him a pass for this week because I, I was I was ready to I was ready to pen the dear Quinn Ewers letter that I was wrong about you and all that and you know I've got I've got it half written but I need to see I need to see a little more consistency before I'm like okay you're you know you're in the upper echelon of (laughs) UT quarterbacks that I've ever seen I was pretty negative on Quinn last year too I was asking openly how is a guy gaining 15 to 20 pounds in the middle of the season like that is that's Dylan Osikowski territory there that we're talking about and then, unfortunately, his performance matched the weight gain and uh, going in the wrong direction. But Do, man, that's a pull. Yeah, thank you. I am trying to be. Well, he's you know. Well, I'm, I'm going to stop there. Osidkowski was such an interesting character. I believe he's still playing ball overseas too, and probably yeah. has that world class old man game going on to go along with the uh, the white boy uh, braids. But uh, Quinn Ewers, I'm trying to be- give him more of the benefit of the doubt, and we're seeing the the proof on the paper. We're seeing the proof on the field, too, at times, that he is taking this whole process more seriously. And, you, you know, you have to start somewhere. And so for him to struggle, back to the point that we were making last hour, Jeff, like he did against Wyoming, but not let that snowball and turn into an even worse game, but him to be able to finish strong, I think ultimately that does help with him. The problem with the consistency stuff is part of that is his mechanics. Like as lively as his arm is, that allows him to get away or has up to this point to get away with really sloppy footwork. And so when you see him sidearm some of these balls into his receivers and they don't catch the ball or whatever, or he throws a pass and it's just not quite on like it needs to be, like a lot of that is him just not setting his feet and getting those proper mechanics down for what should be easy throws for a guy with such a good arm. Yeah, and I wonder if some of that is like just having so much freaking talent your entire life to where you're like, you know, my receiver, I mean, he had great receivers, I'm sure at South Lake Carroll, not, not, you know, not that he had like, I don't know who knows what those guys are doing now, but he had talented receivers and a lot of those were probably just total mismatches and same with playing Pop Warner growing up. So I'm sure a lot of it was just off my back foot. Who cares? Have you seen, have you seen this cannon? Like I can do whatever I want. And that's why I, I admit that after the rice game, I totally overreacted about the deep balls. I think it was just PTSD from last year. And just like, man, we heard that you were a different guy 
all year. And then you come out and can't hit a deep ball against freaking rice. And I admit I was wrong. That was, that was clown. That was clown behavior for me. Like no, he, he, no, he me, no, you don't think so? I'm going to defend you here, Jeff. All right. ESPN showed the stat right before Quinn Ewers hits Xavier Worthy on that first deep ball in Bama. Statistically, he was one of the worst quarterbacks in college football going back to the beginning of last season at hitting balls that were, I think, 20 or 30 years, uh, yards downfield. So statistically, you weren't wrong about that. And it was frustrating. Back to the square peg into the round hole thing yeah. that Sark continued to try and force that even when it wasn't working. Now he did it once against Bama, and then all of us Longhorn fans started getting up in arms and frustrated that here we go again. We're just going to waste plays against a team that we need to be as economical as possible with. But then he hits one, and he hits another, and I think there was a third one in there too to where all of a sudden Steve Sarkeesian buys himself uh, a few more games with regards to calling <laughs> plays like that. Credit to him, though. Or Damn. with regard to not getting asked about that anymore. Yeah. Well, that, that's he was that, getting annoyed about that. I, I don't fault him for that, but he also has to understand where that question is coming from, too. But to his credit, as much as he likes to throw deep, they only threw it deep three times against Wyoming on Saturday night because Wyoming was dropping three safeties back and they just realized that that throw wasn't going to be there. So they needed to try and attack it from a different vantage point. Now, unfortunately, it just wasn't working through the air at all. And they eventually did go with more Jonathan Brooks in the second half. Well, and to to Sark's credit, he did say after the Alabama game, he was like, I understand why you guys are asking about that. And I understand that to get you to stop asking about that, we got to hit a few of those. So then he kind of, you know, that was probably as playful as he, he had been with the media in a, in, in a while there, which, you know, right. you're, yeah, you're ten, right. Ten, that is how you quiet that. You also quiet right. it not doing it so much when it's not working. Yeah. Um, but I think one last thing on Quinn in that regard is, what worries me more than even the deep balls is like the overthrowing. I'm just trying to think of a couple of plays are rolling through my mind, like Jordan overthrowing Jordan Whittington early in the game. I think there was that one, it was way down the other side of the field. And I think he threw it like behind AD Mitchell. And it's just little ones like that, where it's like, even if he throws that probably it was probably a slant pattern or an in pattern, it might only be a five yard gain. But now maybe it's second and five or third and five instead of, you know, second and 10 or third and 10. And just little things like that add up and can help you kind of put away a team like that earlier. Maybe if he hits one or two of those out of like the five or six that he really overthrew, like they might continue a drive. They might sustain a drive and then they might hit a big play after that. So it's just it's kind of just like being more consistent and hitting those. And just chipping away, chipping away to get yourself in the position where taking that deep shot makes sense to call and actually be executed. To your point on some of the misfires, there have been open balls this year that he has just absolutely sailed. But his receivers are athletic enough that they've gone up and kept it from being a pretty easy interception for the safety or the defensive back who's backing that play up. Like I can remember three examples. I want to say it's two with Xavier and one with Jordan Whittington where they had to go way up to try and catch the football. None of the three catches were made, but they did keep likely interceptions from happening as a byproduct of that effort. And and at least two of those instances, there was a lot of room for that defensive back to run with to try and get the ball back upfield too. Oh, for sure. And one, the one in the, um, I believe it was pretty early in the game against Wyoming where he tried to hit uh, Jatavion Sanders over the middle in the end zone. That's probably that's probably picked against a better team. You know, against a 
a more athletic safety maybe or a more instinctual safety. I mean, I don't want to just whoever that was just catching strays from me over here that he should have picked it. But <laughs> but no, I mean, that's that's a pass that if you throw it 10 times, it's probably picked three or four times, you know, maybe even five times, depending on who the safety is. And and that's one where I'd have to go look at it again to see if he maybe even should have thrown it. But it's what we're, you know, and then I mentioned the inconsistency on those. And I know he's used his legs a little bit more. I know he has, and I know people want to talk about that and give him credit for it. He's not a very mobile quarterback. No. So you brought up the offensive line earlier, DJ DJ Campbell there. Or yeah, if he's if he struggles to pass protect, like I mean, there's some where when he, when he got sacked in that drive in the third quarter against against Wyoming, I mean, that was not his fault. Anybody would have Malik Murphy, Arch Manning would have gotten sacked there. But there's some where you're like, I just I kind of wish I had a little more mobility from him. So yeah, the line's going to be. I mean, uh, Captain Obvious over here, but yeah, the line's going to be huge in keeping him upright because he is he is a pocket passer. Like, there's no disputing that. That's his strength. Maybe that so worries me a little bit. Maybe that's part of the reason why we saw Sark trying to go with more quick throws for him, especially after Cole Hudson went out of the game, is because he knew that Quinn wouldn't have a ton of time because Wyoming would be attacking that right side of the line. Line didn't play a clean game either, by the way, in terms of committing penalties either. But when DJ Campbell went in there, all of a sudden pass blocking becomes much more difficult. And we saw it in the Rice game. Whenever Rice got pressure, Quinn was tripping over his own two feet at times. It was Mm -hmm. bizarre to see a guy who looked like he's in that much better shape, like his footwork is somehow worse, like he's tripping over himself trying to escape the pressure, pretty much causing a self-sack at that time. Well, and this is going way back, but I remember when Sark got hired, I watched, I watched like a 30 minute video that he did with when he was the OC at Alabama, it was with some high school coaches or something like that. And he's talking about his philosophy made me think of it when you mentioned those quick completions. So I think those are huge. And I believe it was Mac Jones was the quarterback and he's going through some tape and, you know, I mean, I played football, but I don't claim to be like the biggest X's and O's guys, but I think I know more than the average Joe Mm -hmm. and what Sark was saying was something to the effect of like these RPOs that they were running. You're just trying to get a free completion. You're just trying to get a free. It's almost like, you know, an extension of the running game in a way where, you know, you're not throwing it to a running back, but you might be throwing a quick, a quick pass over the middle. It's like just a cheap free completion. And maybe they need to get more of those going for Quinn of just get him early in the game, like AD Mitchell on a slant pattern. Like, heck it could be a screen pass. Like the one he threw to Xavier, like, I don't, you know, that's probably a confidence builder for a quarterback, even though all you did was really just throw it sideways, which I can imagine as a quarterback, sometimes might even be harder than <laughs> throwing a slant right in front of your face. Well, man, where you're leaning backwards and throwing it sidearm, it is potentially harder, but apparently yeah, it's just not natural an easy throw for Quinn. So we heard a little bit of this last week and it's obviously only intensified since their performance on Saturday A lot of people asking questions about Alabama and whether this is the beginning of the end. And Alabama did not do anything to quiet the doubters with a 17-3 to win over a South Florida team that they were actually tied with going into halftime. They end up taking a touchdown lead in the third quarter, add one late in the fourth. But they did let South Florida hang around in that game. And Jeff, I have to admit, when the news came down last week, that Jalen Milrow would be getting benched in favor of 
Tyler Buckner with a strong likelihood that we saw Ty Simpson before we ever saw Jalen Milrow. It felt like a bit of a panic move out of Nick Saban, which we have not seen a ton out of that guy in his time in Tuscaloosa. I think it's clear at this point that your best quarterback option, assuming that he's not dealing with some sort of injury that took him out of the starting lineup, that Jalen Milrow is the best option going forward. But do you think we are witnessing the real-time demise of Alabama right now? I'll address the uh, the quarterback situation first because sometimes, like sometimes, maybe I feel like Saban is just like effing with the fans. Like he's like, you know, you guys want to grumble about this, you spoiled ass Alabama fans. Like, let me throw in these two guys to show you that they suck, that they're not very good, that we don't have enough playmakers around them. You may be able to get away with Buckner and Simpson on an Alabama team that has Mark Ingram, Trent Richardson you know, like one of those guys, but like with all due respect to uh, Jace McClellan, who has played well against Texas in, in two games, definitely in Austin, like you don't have one of those dudes where you can just hand it to a boring ass game manager at quarterback. Like they just don't have the studs around them right now. They have talent. I mean, Burton's a good receiver. He made a couple good plays, but Milro is at least a playmaker. Yeah. And at least he gives you a puncher's chance against like if it gets if you're in a shootout with Ole Miss if you're Alabama this coming week you know because Jackson Dart can play man he's a good he's experienced in that system he's a veteran quarterback now like at least Milrow I know it's it's got to be frustrating to be a fan if you're a fan of Bama watching him run around and then some of the mistakes that he makes but then some of the plays he makes it's almost like you got to live with that because of the lack of of Alabama-esque talent around him that we've seen other team, other Alabama teams have over the last few years. But um, then overall, like big picture, the demise of Bama, I feel like we are, but I'm just never going to root against Nick Saban. Um, but I did say after the game, like, you know, and all my Texas buddies that were just geeking all week were like, oh, you're just, you're such a pessimist. Like you have to ruin everything. Do you, do you have to just be the guy that craps on everything? And I'm like, guys, this this could be an eight and four Alabama team. Like yep. it's not out of the realm of possibility and it's still an impressive win for Texas later on. And, and who cares what their record ends up being. If that win galvanized them to back status, to back to the big 12, to maybe making the playoff, then who cares? But yeah, I definitely think it was worth having the conversation. Just no one that's ever put on burn orange in their entire life wanted to have that conversation. No, no, unfortunately not. And I do wonder also with Jalen Milrow, like how much can you actually judge based on what he did against a Texas defense? It's one of the best in the country too. Right. Like, and he yeah, made, he made plays, man. Right. And he did make some plays. You're right. I, I, I will say this probably till the end of time, but I think that Texas did luck out in a sense because he is the best option for them at quarterback. They lucked out with the drive that happened before halftime because I think it was a no brainer for Nick Saban, who has obviously shown a propensity to do this throughout his coaching career, that he was going to change quarterbacks at halftime. But Jalen Milrow made that one big play and got them all the way down the field, almost had the touchdown. It gets called back because of the illegal guy downfield, but they end up settling for a field goal going into halftime that his hope right there was that would provide some sort of spark for that offense. And he wasn't completely wrong, by the way. Alabama did take a lead in the third quarter, but ultimately Jalen Milrow's flaws were a part of why Alabama let the game slip away when it was all said and done. Yeah, I 
like I said, I just think the I just think the the, the biggest thing with them moving forward is you got to go with the guy that's more dynamic. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, if you had a team just like if you had Texas's offense or if you had even like Texas offense and there was like a Bijan and Alabama had those guys that they've had in the past, then I think it would make sense to maybe go with a guy that's a little bit safer option, more of a game manager. But yeah, it'll be it'll be really interesting for Texas fans to watch Alabama moving forward this year. I mean, you're if you're a Texas fan, you're rooting for them to win the rest of their games. Yeah. Because you, you want that, even if you lose a game later, you want that to be an even better resume win than it already appears to be right now. Embarrassing admission time, Jeff. Okay. I'm in the rare category of Texas fan that wants to see Alabama lose every game the rest of the way. I know the win loses a little bit of its luster when that happens, but man, I want to see Alabama fall hard this year. They just, Are you just anti-Saban? No, I, I, I like Saban. I respect Saban. They've just been too good for too long. I want to see them yeah. suffer through some tough times if for at least one year. Well, the, the reason the is, is they're going to go eight and four this year or nine and three, and they're probably going to win a national championship <laughs> next year. Well, they could do that next year when they'll, they'll you know, a seven and five Alabama team will probably get in the playoff next year when it's however, what, what are we going to 12 teams or something? What are we doing next year with that? 12-team playoff, yeah. going to be a 12-teamer for two years. And then I believe the TV contract is up, and that's when the SEC and Big Ten place a stranglehold on college football, and they basically say, hey, here, here's what it is right now, guys. We appreciate your participation. Glad you got some teams into the playoff these first couple of years, but you are a different division from us going forward. You are the second division in college football. The college football playoff will be made up of SEC and Big Ten teams. We may very well see Clemson, Florida State, maybe North Carolina, Miami, some schools like that make their way to the SEC or Big Ten, perhaps Notre Dame too. Everybody else is in that second division. The Champions League, the top division, is going to be made up of Big Ten and SEC starting in 2026. And at the end of the day, like – that's what people want to see nationwide. I mean, I know like the college football purists are <clears throat> like, oh, what about us? What about a Cincinnati a couple of years ago? You know what? That was an absolutely awful football game to watch. I mean, they they held their own for a little bit against Alabama, but yeah. who wants to see that? I want to see the best teams play football against each other. I don't want to see I don't want to see what happened. And I know TCU won a playoff game, so it's it's almost it's a double edged sword with their season last year. Because you're like, well, they won a playoff game against Michigan, but man, that was that was such a bummer in that that college football playoff, uh, the national championship game. So you're like, I don't, I don't know. It's just I'm I'm really excited to see what happens with the 12 team playoff because I think if you get some of these, you know, like you said, the SEC and the Big Ten and and maybe whatever ends up happening later on, if you you know you're if Miami ends up getting back to national prominence and. And teams like that where maybe they lose a couple games early, but they have so much talent, they were banged up or whatever. Like, I would rather see a team like that versus, like, that Cincinnati-Alabama playoff game. Yeah. So I'm I'm all for watching the best teams play each other and then letting everybody else do whatever they want to do. What I think what it'll turn into also, I've thought way too much about this over the last (laughs) five years now. What it'll turn into is kind of like an AFC-NFC thing. Well, you'll see a conference playoff for the Big Ten and the SEC with each conference having eight teams set up a tournament. And the champions from each of those brackets will then play one another for the national championship. And so that allows 
those or four of those first eight teams, or I guess eight teams total, uh, four in each conference to have one more home game, which would obviously be very lucrative. And then you start getting some of the uh, some of the bowls involved, and you try and maybe allow for some sort of regional proximity to where it makes more sense for ease of fans traveling to the games to watch things in person. But yeah, I mean, look, it would be sad in a sense because of that underdog story. But by the same token, all of a sudden the underdog actually has a chance to win a national championship. Right. And I would love to add the element of relegation in too, especially because clearly regional proximity doesn't matter for shit anymore after what the Big Ten did and who they decided to add from the West Coast. The ACC. It can even be relegation into effect. Absolutely. The ACC, which is trying to hold on for dear life, although they will likely lose Clemson, Florida State, North Carolina, maybe Miami too when it's all said and done. I mean, they're basically trying to hold on to the fact that they get that TV revenue, even if a handful of schools do try and leave by adding Cal, Stanford, and SMU, that relegation will make sure that the schools that want to commit the resources to staying good and winning will do so. And those that fall behind, well, guess what? There's somebody else who wants to come play in the top division now, so they're going to be replacing you in this conference. And you should... uh... You should try to backdoor your way into like, there's no leadership right now. It's an absolute joke of no one's in charge. Elling for uh, CFP, CFP 2027 or whenever the TV deal runs out. I would love, love, <laughs> love to do that. There are some quick changes that I would make across college football, given the choice. Because I know people were upset with the running clock being more of a thing in college football now where it's not stopping after first downs until two minutes to go in the games. I think overall it's a positive change, but I think that waiting until two minutes is doing that little detail about the college game versus the pro game. A yeah. I would maybe start oh. the clock on first downs with five or six minutes left in each half. See, I actually like it. I like it in the end of the, at the end of the game like that. Do you? Cause it speeds the game up a little bit and it, and it also keeps kind of like you said, it keeps that little different thing that college has in there whether it needs to be there or not, like the one foot versus two feet, you know, with mm-hmm. a catch and things like that. And it's the biggest thing is it speeds the game up. I mean, I understand it in one sense of like, there's only so many football games a year. So who cares if the games on average go three hours and I'm thro- throwing numbers out, but go three hours and 52 minutes versus three hours and 38 minutes. Like, I understand that. Like who, who, who gives a damn about that distinction there? But I mean, we also don't need to be here for some of these games going like four hours and 20 minutes. Some of them are just way too long. Like even that Texas game, well, that Wyoming Texas game, you got to, you actually got to throw that out. That's a terrible example. <laughs> I was about to use that as an example. It's like Wyoming ran the clock out every, every drive. So. They ran the clock out when they needed to score points at the end. Yeah. Of the That's how committed they were to that game plan. Yeah. But no, I'm, what, but what do you like? How come you're, you're against the, changing it up or are you just against that it's only in the final two minutes of the half yeah i think i would expand it a little bit like i i like the move overall even though look it's a small sample size i looked at somewhere around 20 to 30 games like what the game time has been this year versus the most recent data that i could find for average length of college football game sadly jeff not that big of a difference it was like 326 for the average length of game and 2021 and it was like 324 for this year again based on like 20 or 30 games that i did the average for 
Do you think they were going like, do you think they were like saw the pitch clock in baseball and overreacted maybe? Because, because I feel like it wasn't, it wasn't a massive outcry over how long the games were. It was something that people would kind of complain about. And then the next game would come up and then as many or more people would still watch and things would just move on. Like it felt like a change that they didn't absolutely have to make. I think that they saw enough games that were going over three and a half and in some cases four hours and are like, this is ridiculous. This is entirely too much time for anybody to have to sit and watch a game. In the NFL, which I'm a bigger college fan than I am NFL fan, so I say this begrudgingly. The NFL runs a more efficient product, uh, project. Like I watch NFL games on Sundays and I'm like, good job, NFL. Way to keep these things at about a tight three hours. Sometimes it goes a little bit over that if... Yeah, you know, there's a long delay for some reason, an injury, or there have been a bunch of replays that require additional time, or sometimes it's just a close game that's a back and forth affair that takes a little bit longer. But you never feel, or you very rarely feel in an NFL thing, game that things are dragging. And it felt that way far too often watching college football over the last half, half decade plus now. Unfortunately, what it looks like is a bit of a bamboozle where we're told that the games are going to speed up but the games aren't actually speeding up all that much. What they're doing is they're probably inserting one more commercial break each quarter. (laughs) Our last comment. A little bit more money in the process. So if that's what's happening here, then shame on them. They need to be called out for that. And we truly do need to try and speed this process up to get closer to a three to three hour and 15 minute affair. That's what our last comment from Jake just said right there. It's the commercials. Yeah. Jake Bayless says, it's the commercials that are the problem. You're right. The commercials are part of the problem because it does feel like the games themselves are going a little bit quicker. But unfortunately, at least based on looking at 20 to 30 of the uh, top 25 competitions games, this is, by the way, based on the fact that uh, some of these box scores, it's so difficult to find game duration, believe it or not. Texas uses a website that actually makes it easily accessible but half the college programs that I looked at, they use a completely different system and they don't provide any obvious place for length of game. Yeah, it's something that you'd think they would just put in the game notes at the end of the game. You it know? seems obvious to me. And the Texas people have done it for a long time to where I just assumed everybody did. But sadly, that's not the case. Hmm. Yeah, well, I think uh, I just... I just love football too. Like it's something that like I'm I'm fine with the with the you know the changes here and there, but I also just I also just really love football. Like I don't even know how to say it. I'm like we I was so miserable all summer just I mean watching golf and tennis and whatever came on and I love those sports, but you know that's why I think like there's like the game is in a, the game's in a good place right now. It's it's fun to be I think it's fun to be in our positions where we get to kind of talk about and live through these these massive changes to the landscape of of college football because that really is what's happening right now. I mean, it's between NIL, the portal, all these things. We are living through probably the most transcendent time in college football. You know, at least just so much change in a short period of time. And then also you threw the COVID wrench in there, which, you know, the kind of unintended effects that that probably had long-term and the changes that that made for a season, two seasons, whatever. Um, so it's, it's fun to, it's fun to watch, but at the end of the day, we freak out about all this stuff in the off season and fans are up in arms about it all. And then guess what? Football comes back and it's just as awesome as it was before. You are a lover of football. So am I. So is pretty much anybody else who watches or listens to uh, sports broadcasts. 
much more so than any other sport. I have no problem admitting that. I'll take college. I'll take pro. As far as the pro side of things goes, Jeff, who is the team that you root for? <laughs> uh, the Raiders. Oh, boy. Hey, really, really proud of myself. A big moment of maturity and growth for me. I watched them win 17-16 against the Broncos, and I said, that was an absolute dog shit win. Like, this is not a good football team. They're, we're going to play the Bills next week. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bet the Bills minus nine and a half because that's the freest money that I've ever seen. And I watched that game while I was at work yesterday, and it was just the weirdest feeling. Like, like the Raiders would move the ball, and I'd be like, and then I, it's, it's just uh, just a maturity thing. You know, at some point, it's like you got to accept that your team sucks and they're helpless. So why don't I at least make some money when I'm watching this game? I do not like Josh McDaniels at all either. I saw how bad he was for Denver. I could not believe that Mark Davis went out and hired him as y'all's head coach. Yeah, I I don't have any like super strong opinions on him. Like I think we could have gotten a better coach, but you know, it's also you look at some of the other guys. I'm not a huge Sean Payton guy. Right. Like I think I just think I mean I think he's a really really good head coach, but I mean what what's the difference between him and Mike McCarthy? I mean, it, transcendent quarterbacks, generational quarterbacks, each one won Super Bowl, spent a decade plus in their respective cities that are, you know, medium to small markets. And I don't know, like, I just feel like there's a lot more similarities there. And we just wreck Mike McCarthy. I think one is a bigger drinker and the other is a big eater. <laughs> well, I think I think the national I think the national media props up Sean Payton a lot too. That's a really interesting point that you just made. I hadn't thought about that before, but in terms of skins on the wall, it is very similar, especially when you talk about that very final game and that championship. Sean Payton, better as an offensive play caller, I guess, but to your point, he also had Drew Brees for that entire time. And things started to come unwound for him in the end with New Orleans. And interestingly, Jerry supposedly had a backroom deal worked out for Sean Payton, but uh, ended up not pulling the trigger on that with Mike McCarthy as his head coach. I'm not like a huge McCarthy fan uh, fan by any means. I mean, obviously I follow the Cowboys because, you know, we show, we show their games at station. I mean, they're, they're part of our sports cast quite a bit. And it's just, there, I live in Cowboys country, even if I'm not in DFW, and it's you know America's team and all that. But um, I mean, they've what'd you think? Of, what'd you think of yesterday? I mean, that was I, it was it was as impressive as that win could be for the Jets not having Aaron Rodgers. Look, if you are both a Longhorns and Cowboys fan this year, congratulations! You get to watch two elite defenses that will keep your team in pretty much every game. And so your offense has a lot of wiggle room and they get time to figure things out if it's not clicking at the very beginning. And uh, I think the Dallas offense was just fine yesterday. Like we were asking questions about Tony Pollard and how would he, he would look about getting a single preseason carry. I think he looks fine. I think that CeeDee Lamb is really getting comfortable as that number one wide receiver option for them now. And Dak is Dak. He does a good job of going through his progressions at times and I think that he is good enough to help this team win postseason games. The question is all about Mike McCarthy and whether he's going to figure out a way to fumble games away, figuratively speaking, because he's obviously on the sidelines and not actually touching the footballs. But 
Mike just call, like clock, clock management, play calling. Now that he's calling plays and stuff, exactly. it's like every time they're playing a home game and he looks up at that giant screen at Jerry World, he just has the, the most oafish look on his face. Oh, like that's all. <laughs> I feel like that sound is going through his head far too often when he's thinking about what else to do in a game, whether it's call a timeout or how he needs to handle an end of half situation or a play that needed to call on offense. But he's got a lot of room to work with right now. And that worries me as a lifelong Cowboys fader, uh, hater, as a uh, fan of the Houston Oilers back in the day, who's now just an NFL bastard who roots for guys on my fantasy team and former Texas Longhorns. I don't want to see the Cowboys win another one. I feel like we are secure in that not happening as long as Jerry Jones alive is alive. Hell, maybe now that Jerry has that AI-powered hologram, the AI-powered hologram may be owning the team once Jerry actually does pass away. So perhaps it's still the end of time, but with how good this defense is, and specifically how good Micah Parsons is, is already proving himself as one of the best all-time defenders of the NFL just a handful of years into his career. Mike McCarthy is set up very well to accomplish some uh, some really nice things for Cowboys fans this season. I And again, I don't hate the Cowboys. I don't love the Cowboys. I'm probably one of like seven people in America that's just like whatever about Seriously. them. You know? But I freaking love Micah Parsons. I mean, that dude is just, just an ultimate football player. Uh, I was going on my stupid rant about loving football a second ago, and it's like, man, like... You know, the whole deal this week was about the turf. The conversation was all about the, you know, the turf hurt Aaron Rodgers and all that. And I think there's a great case for that as well. But I loved his comment when they asked him about that. They were like, you know, what what do you prefer? And he's just like, I'll play on dirt. It's like something to that effect. And then they asked Dak about it and Dak just starts laughing. He's like, he's young. And I'm like, no, he's just, he's just exactly what you want from your defensive end. He, he's just the dude that, doesn't give a damn, loves football, see quarterback, get quarterback, um, you know, super bright dude off the field. But when you put him on the field in that situation, he's just an absolute animal, just a beast. I, I love watching him play. That play that he made, um, that was it was a scoop and score or a strip, strip and score, basically. But it got called back because, you know, the offensive lineman's foot was on his leg or whatever. So they consider him down for that, even though the lineman was in no way trying to tackle him. He had no idea what was going on, but that play, man, just sums up like him as a football player, just bully ball nose for the ball. Like I, I love watching that dude play. And like you said, Mike McCarthy, Dak Prescott, two guys that I don't necessarily I have respect for, but I don't have the utmost belief in to be guys that can get them over the top. I mean, you've got Dan Quinn calling the defense, Micah Parsons leading it. And then the rest of the guys behind him, that's, that's a, that's a lot of wiggle room to fall back on, as you said. Not to go to Coastal Carolina head football coach here, but you are looking for dogs. You are looking for guys who will do whatever it takes to get the job done. It's very rare that you get a guy who's not only a Class A dog, he also has a superhero body type, like what Mar- Micah Parsons have. So you combine those two things, and you have a guy who is supremely productive. And as much as we've talked about Anthony Hill early on here at Texas, I do yeah. wonder, especially after that uh, assignment bust early in the Wyoming game where he gets sucked into the line of scrimmage, which we saw against Alabama, by the way, when he was supposed to be spying Jalen Milrow, but Milrow was several yards behind the line of scrimmage to where he could make up that ground with his insane quickness and athleticism. 
if we're not better off just putting him on the edge because he has such a uniquely good skill set there that draws the comparisons to a Micah Parsons, which the Cowboys at first were considering playing him in the middle of the field a little bit more, and then eventually they realize, wait, why are we doing this? Let's let him do what he's best at and force opposing teams to have to cope with that. Now, occasionally he will drop back into coverage, catching teams by surprise, but mostly he's looking to wreck havoc. He's looking to hit running backs hard when they receive the football and then quarterbacks really hard when they drop back to pass too. Oh, and that's kind of like the, you know, positionless football almost with some of those guys. Like, I mean, obviously they're locked into a position of just basically his linebacker edge rusher, whether it's, you know, a young Anthony Hill or Parsons right now, but it's guys where you're like, don't overdo it with the X's and O's with them. Put them in, give them the scheme, put them in positions to make plays, and then just let them let them go do it. Because I think sometimes that's, you know, these coaches kind of overthink it when they have a generational talent, whether it's somebody on the offensive side or like guys we're talking about on defensive side, Parsons. And I don't know if Hill's generational yet, but he certainly looks like he has that that capability, that potential for Texas. It's like, dude, just roll the ball out and let these dudes play. Yeah, exactly. Uh, anything else really catch your eye from week, week two in the NFL? No, I mean, uh, the Texans, man. Like, Mm-mm-mm. it's just, yeah, I, I was that was my stupidest bet of the week was thinking that thinking that, that that was a fluke on the road, bad spot in week one to Stroud to start his career. And and look, he he still might be he still might be great. He might be awesome one day, but. I thought that defense was was better than they were, man. I mean, they got absolutely shredded by Anthony Richardson before he, you know, basically for all intents got knocked out of the game with a concussion on a touchdown run. Um, and then Minshew comes in and does the same thing to them. It's like, I don't know, long, long season ahead, only two games into the D'Amico Ryans era. But like, I think we're just going down another path where like they're just uninterest, just uninteresting. Yeah, unfortunately for the Texans, they're dealing with a lot of injuries on the defensive side of the ball already and on the offensive line, too. Like, credit C.J. Stroud. He had a great game. He is under constant pressure back there because they are so banged up on that offensive line. And nobody expected him to be very good this year either. Now, Indianapolis also not supposed to be very good. Credit Anthony Richardson. I think he's forced into starting sooner than he probably should have been considering how raw he is as a passer but he's that good as a runner that it has really helped them to stay in their week one game against Jacksonville who ultimately pulled ahead for good and then helping them win this game over the Texans yesterday unfortunately for Anthony Richardson he's really got to learn how to slide those hits that you could just shrug off in college it doesn't work like that in the NFL anymore As a matter of fact, I feel like he may have gotten concussed in that week one matchup against Jacksonville where he left the game at the very end of the game with them at the goal line. And unfortunately, that might be two straight weeks of concussions for him based on him self-reporting the symptoms. So credit to him on that one and ultimately losing his helmet and then being ruled out for the rest of the game soon afterwards. Although I always do love a good Gardner Minshew story. (laughs) And uh, Gardner Minshew, maybe the best backup quarterback in the NFL. The most interesting backup quarterback in the NFL. Most interesting backup quarterback for sure. And he's also a Mike Leach protege. And he he goes full throttle when he gets those opportunities. And we've seen some positives from that. We've seen him struggle at times too, uh, specifically with Philly last year. But I'll uh, be happy to see Gardner Minshew get another shot as a starting quarterback in the NFL if Anthony Richardson has to miss any significant time. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess uh, across the rest of the NFL, I don't think there was anything insanely surprising. What I mean, what what stood out to you? Bengals. Yeah, Bengals zero two. But but Joe Joe Burrow's not right. I mean, that's nope. like when you're when you're coming off the sideline after throwing a touchdown, you're gimping off, and then you're going Theragun straight to the calf. Not not a great not a great look. Not not exactly the picture of health for a quarterback. Yeah, the Theragun to the calf. That is a bad sign. I see that. When I play sand volleyball, where guys were pulling the air gun out at times, I'm like, wait a second, we're mid game right now. Are you trying to get this loose? Cause this, uh, you may be in some trouble here. Hell, I'm in trouble some of the time doing that. I but see yeah, dudes I, doing that on the golf course too. Golf course. Yeah. It's like you, you've got a bad back there, dude. That air gun yeah. is not going to help your back. It may help you get through the round, I guess, but you're in a, a world of hurt there. Exactly. And Cincinnati is a team that a lot of people thought would make some postseason noise this year. They need to hang on for dear life right now because we all know what the stats look like starting out 0-2. It's a little bit different now that there is that uh, that extra team or that, yeah, it's that extra team that's in the, the postseason, that extra wild card spot. They lose another game next week and they may very well be without Joe Burrow's services if he tweaked that calf muscle once again. All of a sudden, you're star- staring down the start of a very disappointing season in Cincinnati. Yeah, I mean, we knew that that division was going to be one of the toughest, if not the toughest in the NFL. So not, I mean, not totally surprised once you see that from Burrow that, that they're 0 and 2. But yeah, I think, uh, I mean, other surprising 0 and 2s, maybe uh, the Chargers, a little bit surprising. I mean, I've never been a big Brandon Staley guy. I think his whole like go for it every damn time on fourth down is, I think some of that, I think some of the aggression with these coaches, like we're calling it aggressive when, to a, at a certain point, it eventually it's just arrogance, you know. Like I'm, I'm, I'm watching the rate. Like you don't just go for it every time on fourth down. Right. I mean, Doug Peterson does that, and I think he's probably the closest to really what I would say is doing it the right way. And also, he'll quarterback sneak it on fourth and inches. That's what drives me the most insane about watching football. Is like it's fourth and inches, dude. Just give it to your big ass quarterback and have him ram up the middle. And if it doesn't work, you know, or they haven't banned the Philly play yet. Exactly. The Philly play, the Philly play is going to get banned eventually where you can't just, you know, go have put three dudes behind him and bush push him basically past the first down marker. But yeah, there was one play too, where, you know, where these guys talk about arrogant or where I was talking about arrogance with some of these coaches. First play of the Raiders Raiders Broncos game last week, Sean Payton comes out. First play is the Broncos coach. They onside kick it. Every analyst in America, the analyst in the game at halftime, they're saying the same thing. Oh, it's Sean Payton trying to set the tone. Oh my God. It's all this love for Sean Payton. No, that's freaking stupid is what it is. <laughs> it's a stupid move. The Raiders got a short field and went up seven, nothing and won the game 17, 16. It's dumb. Yeah. Sorry. Goodness. I have no idea how I just went on you that. You and I are, you are Kendrick spirits with regards to uh saber metrics saying that guys need to go for it all the time on fourth and one, regardless of where yeah. they are on the field. I have hammered Staley through his first two years in the league for that insanity. He dialed it back a little bit last year and was actually starting to kick field goals in situations where he would have gone for it in 2021, but it's still not good enough. And I know he got chippy with a reporter yesterday after their game because they lost to a Titans team that looked completely listless in, in week one. And by the way, you have Justin Herbert right now. He's one of the more talented signal callers in the NFL. Some of his uh, early, really good years are being completely wasted with you as his head coach. I'm not, I don't even care about him getting chippy with the media guy. What I care about 
is that Brandon Staley right now looks like what a U.S. president looks like two years through his four-year term because of how that job ages you. (laughs) Brandon Staley looks like he's aged 10 years in the last two years. So clearly the pressure of that job is beginning to get to that guy now too. Yeah, and the the funny thing is with the Chargers, like they don't even really have this massive fan base. That's like It's not like, yeah, there's pressures of every NFL job. I get it because you're so highly paid and, and the expectations are high and the margins are just razor thin in the, in the NFL. But I mean, it's not like the dudes coaching the Cowboys. Yeah. I was, I, I loved when he, when he went off on the reporter though, like I don't agree with him doing that, but it makes for, that makes for great sound bites later. Gives, gives people something to talk about and all that. So. Yeah. I feel like it was maybe the most talked about sign ba- sound bite coming out of the weekend. And on the one hand, I don't fault him, but back to the point that you made a couple of hours ago now, like it's those guys' jobs to ask the legitimate questions about things. And if that upsets you, having to face those questions, well, get ready because it could get a lot worse too. San Diego has a brutal, or I said San Diego, of course (laughs) they did. The Chargers have a brutal schedule this year. Brutal. I I don't think people ever stop making the San Diego mistake. Look, it's like Town Lake versus Lady Bird Lake. Cut me a break. For the first 40 years of my life, it was the San Diego Chargers. I'm going to still call them the San Diego Chargers from time to time. I will try to go L.A. Chargers. But ultimately, I hope they end up in a city other than L.A. because L.A. is not going to appreciate that team. All that turns into is opposing fan bases looking at that as a good opportunity to go take a mini vacation to Southern California. Because that stadium is not going to be filled up by Chargers fans. And how about this? Win something that matters, and then we'll start calling you L.A. That, too. All right. The Chargers schedule for 2023. They lost to... No, this is 2022. What are we doing here? Oh, no, this is preseason. So they lost to Tennessee yesterday, as we just mentioned. They are at the Vikings for week three. Battle of 0-2 teams, by the way. I don't know who you have in that one, Jeff. Vikings Chargers this week? The Vikings play the Chargers, yeah, in Minnesota. See, this is when the NFL gets fun because then, like, that's a fun game. You have two teams that, I mean, I was never high on Minnesota because I think when you win that many fluky close games, it's going to at least revert back towards towards the mean at some point. Um, But also, I just, I I can't stand the Chargers. So that's what that makes this game even more fun for me because I I would love to see them go to 0-3. Is that the team that you hate the most in the AFC West? <clears throat> Probably. Uh, I mean, the, I would say the Raiders' biggest rival. It's tough because, you know, it was the Niners were a big rival for a long time, but you didn't even play them every year because weren't in the same conference or division. I would say the Chiefs, probably the Chiefs, are, are, the, are the biggest rival. Yeah. But I just love watching Mahomes play. So maybe I'm just a shitty Raider fan in that sense. Well, the Chargers do play the Raiders at home in week four, so I'm sure there'll be a bunch of Vegas DGens in the crowd for that one. Week five is a bye. They suffered through the unfortunate early season bye. I think most teams would prefer to have that week 10 or beyond. Week six is the Cowboys. Week seven at the Chiefs. Weeks eight and nine are Bears and Jets, so you catch a break there. Week 10, Lions, 11 Packers, Ravens, Patriots, Broncos, Raiders, Bills, Broncos, Chiefs. So, Maybe overstated just how difficult that schedule is, but coming off that bye, you better be ready to go because it is uh, Cowboys and Chiefs back to back, which are almost certainly a couple more losses for you. 
Yeah, definitely uh, not the schedule you want to start 0-2 with when you have that the rest of the way. Yeah, well, one of those two teams is the Titans, which I, I don't know how to read the Titans going forward now. Like, it looked like Ryan Tannehill was completely washed up in week one. Derrick Henry's still Derrick Henry. Like, he's probably on the decline, but he's still better than, I don't know, nine out of every 10 starting NFL running backs, maybe be a higher percentage. It may be like 19 out of 20. But uh, the Titans are a, a very strange football team. But Mike Vrabel is also a good coach, too. So maybe we need to give a little bit of credit there. But what are they doing with that team? Like, so you draft two young quarterbacks really early on and just never play them? Like, it doesn't make sense. Then you just keep playing Ryan Tannehill. I can never look at Ryan Tannehill and not think of, like, that dude was playing in, like, UT A&M matchups. It felt like 20 years ago. I know. And he's still just, like, a middling NFL quarterback. I don't get it, though. Like, do you is – it, is it a defensive coach's mindset with Vrabel where he's just – is so much belief in the defense that it's like, I just want a quarterback that's not going to screw it up. Well, I think with Malik Hornsby, they realize from watching him last year and probably in going through offseason workouts heading into this season that he doesn't have it. So it is going to get truly ugly if they roll with him again. And their hope is that Will Levis figures it out and they can eventually hand the keys from, or Ryan Tannehill can hand the keys to Will Levis. But that remains to be seen. I feel like he was dinged up to start the year, too. So in the meantime, you're going to let Tannehill, who is your highly paid option, try and prove himself. You theoretically got him better receiving options on the outside this year. No more Robert Woods now. DeAndre Hopkins comes in, even though there are legitimate questions being asked about him. I also think that Cliff Kingsbury did a terrible job using him these last couple of years. And then you hope that Traylon Burks, who suffered through an injury-riddled rookie campaign coming out of Arkansas, is going to start to figure some things out in year two. And it looks like that's actually beginning to occur for him. And DeAndre Hopkins, by the way, had a huge catch in the third quarter of yesterday's game, too, to go along with the fact that you do still have Derrick Henry. So if you take that Arthur Smith game plan, you can build the passing attack around play action and run Derrick Henry 20 to 25 times per game. Yeah, but, you know, it's like at some point that's going to run out with Derrick Henry. He's going to fade a little bit at some point. And then from there, man, it's like you got to have a quarterback. Um, yeah, Ryan Tannehill doesn't seem like he's going to be the guy uh, very much longer in Tennessee, but we shall find out for sure. How about the New York football Giants <laughs> mounting a massive comeback? Arizona, as bad as they are this year, we got to give them credit for putting themselves in situations to potentially win games the first two weeks. Eventually, they're going to become this shitty Cardinals team that we thought they were heading into the year. It's why everybody predicts them to have the worst record and then get the top two picks in the draft because of the trade they made with the Texans last year. Texans the second worst team in the league. Eventually, the Cardinals will turn back into the Cardinals. I guess that's probably happening in the fourth quarters of these games, though, considering how they are losing each of their first two contests. Hey, you don't you don't just walk into Glendale, Arizona and push Josh Dobbs around. All right. Isn't that what we've always said in the NFL? <laughs> like like that game yesterday, like what is going on? The Giants down 28 to seven. Talk about the work. Is that the worst six quarters to start a football season for a team that actually had like some expectations for, for a, yeah. a team that won a playoff game the year before? That might be the worst game and a half start to a season I think I've ever seen. 
Well, people were really high on Dable, too, for obvious reasons. I was amongst that crowd, but I, I feel like we were a quarter away from Giants fans turning on him in a major, major way. Well, because when you play when you play that crappy like they did against the Cowboys, I mean, obviously, a lot of the onus has to fall on the players when guys are just, like, dropping balls left and right, fumbling. I mean, everything's just going wrong. Special teams is a disaster. And the Cowboys are really damn good. But when you're that bad, I think a lot, I think it's almost like, okay, like that's some coaching, like your team wasn't ready and that fall, that falls on the coaches. Yeah, I, I think you're, uh, you're definitely right about that one. We are seeing, speaking of declines, we talked about it with Nick Saban in Alabama earlier. We are seeing the official decline of the New England Patriots. It's been going on for a couple of years now. I think we can safely say that uh, Bill Belichick is nearing the end the Patriots lose to Miami, who wasn't even all that great last night on Sunday Night Football, 24-17. New England 2-0, or 0-2, excuse me, to start the year for the first time since 2001. Mac Jones is one of those mopey-faced quarterbacks that <laughs> scares me so much. I've got a little bit of Jay Cutler PTSD from watching Cutler with the Bears. Mac Jones has a very Cutler demeanor about him. And unfortunately for the Patriots fans, well, that time has come and gone. You're you're back to mediocrity now. Have fun with that. And enjoy all those Super Bowl titles that Tom Brady and Belichick won you over the previous 20-plus years. Yeah, they, they, they can't draft and develop at the skill positions. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that's towards the end of the Brady era when he wasn't happy there. And, you know, there was, what, the two, three years of rumors before he finally left for Tampa. It was so Patriots last night that, like, the highlight and play of that game – was a rookie defensive back making an interception, and then the offense can't really cash it in for anything. <clears throat> I mean, Christian Gonzalez, like, you know, they really haven't drafted that well at all, but no. I think with Belichick for so long, obviously it was Brady, and then it was the system, and it was the culture, and it was the do-your-job and all of that stuff. Um, and that's how you could run a team back then, but now, man, I mean, like, you can't have, like, a C-plus, B-minus quarterback zero talent around him and then like a good defense. I mean, right, that's Jeff. a it's a recipe for literally going like 8 and 9 every year. All right, Jeff, if we're grading uh week 1 performances or week to week performances, your first week on Texas Sports Unfiltered, your first show, your first 2 hours gets an A+. Thank you so very much for the conversation today. I look forward to next Monday. Yeah, appreciate you having me. I only got one I only got one like bad comment. So, I think I did all right. You know what? Let the let the haters hate you. People that think that uh, politically correct optimist is uh, Jeff's game. You weren't listening for very long because he was expressing <laughs> pessimism all throughout the two hours. Don't let that comments line affect you too negatively, Jeff. It is uh, it's a bunch of savages on that line, and uh, there's some good people there too. But there are assholes who are just looking to uh, to get a rise. All Jake. good. I can I I can handle it. Y'all should see my inbox that I get from uh, from people <laughs> for my TV work. That's fair. All right, we'll, talk, we'll talk to you next week, Jeff. See you guys. Bye. All right. Welcome to Chip and Zay to the show today. What's up, boys? How we doing? What's up, Trey? All right. Well, I'm going to hand it off to you guys now, so have fun today.